Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at Skullnight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey everybody. And Grail. Hey. It is actually a news-filled episode, believe it or not, because the final volume of Berserk just landed a couple days ago. We're recording this the day after Christmas. Along with that, uh, the only volume of Duranki uh, also came out. So we're going to go through those releases before we head into our volume 27 reread. So the big one is, of course, that volume 41 is out. I believe the last time we sat in front of the microphone, we had just seen a leak of volume 41's cover, and we weren't sure, 100% sure of its authenticity. Obviously, it did end up being the real cover. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion about the nature of the cover because it does look like Miura. I think now we know that Miura, it was based on a sketch from him and it was finished by Studio Gaga, which that was the assumption at the time as well. Yeah, we don't know for sure how much uh, work Miura had done on it, but what's clear is that uh, Studio Gaga uh, completed it. So we don't know how much he had done, but yeah, they took part in uh, making the cover and the posters. Yeah. It is interesting that it's uh, it definitely stands apart from the other covers for a variety of reasons because of its it's a posthumous release uh, done not entirely by Miura and you can kind of feel that I don't know if it's just the composition or also the fine details of it but it just feels a little a little off uh, to me yeah I agree yeah it's it's just different. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely not the subject matter. I'm happy that Casca and the boy made it on, which is like a long time dream of mine to have those characters there. Um, not just guts looking angry, but we managed to get both of those things squeezed into the cover. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Last time uh, Casca and the boy were on the cover since volume 20. Yep, volume 20. That's mm. right. Um, there's a couple other things too. Uh, volume 41 came with a bunch of uh, international advertisements. There was one placed in the New York Times, a full a full page ad. There was one in the was it what was it Le over Monde. in France? There was one. What was it? Le Monde. It's a, a right. primary uh, newspaper in France. Ooh man, they really went all out. Yeah. Wow. And of course, the one in Japanese as well. Yeah, Asahi um, Shimbun. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, all three papers of record for those locations, for those countries, uh, and three different pieces of art, which was an interesting choice. Not to just pick one and say, that's the one we're getting behind. So uh, the Asahi Shinbun got the uh, black and white version of volume 27's cover, which is appropriate. That's the one we're talking about today. Um, The New York Times edition got this really weird sketched version of volume 27, also black and white. Uh, it's really curious. It's it's definitely the weird one uh, because um, France got the uh, volume twenty two cover kind of cut out. Um, yeah, version they did a little it. crop. Yeah, kind of a not a great crop if you were looking at it really carefully. But uh, sure, volume twenty two cover with Griffith and guts on it. Uh, I got the copy of the New York Times. I was able to look at it pretty carefully. Um, it's uh, it's strange, right? I'll tell you why it's strange. I mean, it's obvious, right? Is that this is the final volume of Berserk. This advertisement is to commemorate volume 41, Miura's last work. And yet it's not really Miura's work. Uh, it's somebody else's sketch. It certainly looks like it. I don't know how you guys feel, but I look at that and there are a variety of inconsistencies where I'm just like, this doesn't feel like Miura at all. 
I was really confused by that because I've uh, I've obviously seen Volume Twenty Seven's cover because that's the volume we're covering today. But yeah. I hadn't seen like the line art version or the sketch version you guys are talking about. I I had never seen that before. No, no uh, one has. Yeah, so I was yeah. really confused when I saw it. Yeah, it's new, and uh, I had the same reaction. I was like, "Hmm, what's that?" And like Walter immediately felt off and. I mean, it just looks to me, that's what it looks like, is, uh, for example, Kurosaki or another of Mira's assistants just uh, redrew, I wouldn't say traced because it's not exactly tracing, but redrew pretty much exactly uh, Volume 27's cover, trying to imitate the art, but doing so in a not uh, very good manner. Uh, so it, it ends up looking like, uh, yeah, it's an imitation of Mira's art, but it's not at all on his level. So I also agree. I just find it, I don't know, it's just strange. It's a strange yeah. thing. So not sure exactly what the reasoning was for this. Oh, to be a fly on the wall during that exchange of like, oh, let's just do this cover, but could you please redraw it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it's also just like, we already have this one we're going to do. Let's triple the amount of work and make different covers for each country. Like, who? why would they do that? Why would they just pick the one? A, it's less effort. B, it's the most authentic way to do it, you know? Mm. I think I think they were trying to do, because so the French version is in partnership with Glena, which is a French mm-hmm. uh, publisher, and the uh, New York Times one is in partnership with Dark Horse, but... Haksensha took part in all of them. So it's a common project. And I think they were trying to do kind of a worldwide event where uh, French, uh, in- French-speaking fans, English-speaking fans, and Japanese-speaking fans would all rally together around the uh, Berserk hashtag on uh, like Twitter and stuff like that. But, uh, I mean, if that was a really the intent, which seems to be because that's what they communicated, uh, mm-hmm. Like, obviously, it failed. And, I mean, so it was Christmas time. Christmas in Japan is not as big of a deal as it is in the Western world. But mm-hmm. obviously, on Christmas, I mean, that issue of Le Monde, it's actually the one, uh, it's published, uh, so Le Monde is a, a paper that's published in the evening. So it mm-hmm. comes out around uh, 5 p.m. each day. So it, that one came out uh, 5 p.m. on a Friday, uh, December 24th. So uh, if you're not subscribing to Le Monde, you, you didn't get it, you didn't see right. it. So not many people saw it. Um, I don't know about the New York Times. I don't know about Asahi Shimbun, how it worked. But I feel like, yeah, it's just... And of course, Christmas time, people are not going to be tweeting out that. And especially... From what I saw on Twitter, what a lot of people were expecting is news about the series continuation. A lot of people were uh, thinking it was going to be something like that, which from the beginning they said, no, 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 it's just going to be about Volume 41. It's just to be a celebration of Berserk. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I feel like that just, just misfired. And maybe the different artwork thing was a part of trying to be like, oh, hey, look, I got this one in France. Oh, I got this one in the US. I got this one in Japan. <laughs> I was going to say collectability, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it works because uh, I'll uh, I'll try to get the Japanese one and uh, maybe the French one, you know, try, try to get these and put them in a plastic bag somewhere and never look at them again. <laughs> but uh, And they also had each uh, different bonuses. For example, right. if you got the French one, uh, you could access a translated version of episode 258 
six months before the volume comes out. Oh. So, you know, it pretends that people aren't looking at scanlations online, which, yeah, which is very nice. Of them. It's very naive and nice, and, and I like that. And uh, God bless. The, the Dark Horse one had, like, uh, free access to the guidebook, mm-hmm. which is also, I mean, it's cool enough, right? And a Japanese yeah, that's, one. I mean, that's, you know, they've been charging full price for that ever since. So, yeah, I mean, it is a, they're giving up 10 bucks profit for that. So good on them. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a cool effort, but to do it, like, on that specific date, Christmas, uh, I don't know. And probably it costs them a, quite a bit of money, right? Because to get a full-page ad in the New York Times and Le Monde is pretty pricey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's, it's, it's not one, it's not a, what do you call it, uh, a half-hearted attempt at advertising for Volume 41. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Probably the biggest deal I think we've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty big effort. They also made a like a video advertisement, mm-hmm. uh, a minute long one, which is also something they rarely do because it's expensive. And Young Animal, I mean, it remains a pretty small thing, right? It's a small magazine, doesn't make a huge amount of money or anything like that. So they, they did go all out uh, as much as they could for that, and I appreciate it. But yeah, I don't think it quite achieved uh, their goals in terms of just making noise in the space. Uh, however, I do think uh, Volume Forty One sold pretty well. Yeah, I was I was monitoring it throughout the day on Amazon Japan, and I saw it as high as number two. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Will of T said it was eventually number one, but I missed that. Number yeah. one selling book, uh, comic, sorry, volume, manga in Japan. Yeah, well, I mean, good. Yeah. As, it, as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Not much more to say about that. Uh, so that was a, that was a kind of an interesting uh, novel event that happened in the past few days. I think it was actually Christmas Eve that those advertisements landed, and then yeah. the volume itself came out on Christmas Day. I'm no, sure no, it's right. a Christmas no? Eve as well. Christmas Eve also. Okay, my bad. Yeah. Yeah, so the volume is out, and I wanted to, the last thing I wanted to mention about the New York Times ad is that the volume in the the bottom corner it mentions that the Dark Horse edition of that, the English translation, will be out in this summer, twenty twenty two. Yeah, same for the French one, uh, July twenty twenty two. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, their collectors, the collector's edition of Volume Forty One. I'm gonna get mine. I think it's Monday, so tomorrow or Tuesday. I expect to get it. Uh, I'll have more to say about that when it arrives. I have seen no chatter at all about the collector's edition. I know nothing about the drama CD, for example, uh, or the cloth. I don't know the picture. I don't know if it's a cloth. It's a cloth. It's cloth, right? No, I think it's a, I think it's a picture. Uh, what do you mean by cloth? Material. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a cardboard thing. You, so the volume is in a kind of a cardboard uh, frame, basically, and there's a picture uh, at the back. Uh, with a CD, I think, I think, mm. uh, not, not 100%. I seem to remember some kind of cloth picture they were going to give away as well. Mm. Okay. I, I saw, don't remember. I thought it was just, um, uh, like an illustration on a, what do you call that? Canvas, but, uh, yeah. canvas. I, I'm, we're, we're mixing the, we're mixing the two. I said cloth canvas is more what I was trying to say. Ah, okay. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. My bad. No, we're, I should have said canvas anyway. Um, the drama CD and that are the collector's bonuses. I'll have more to say about that when I see them. And again, I haven't seen anything about them online. Uh, but for the actual volume, 
there are two new pieces of art in the posters, and those were the highlight for me. Um, so to be clear, I have not seen Volume 41 yet, nor have I seen Duranki, because the digital editions of those I'm not able to access because my bank is being a dick, uh, not allowing me to buy them. Uh, so that's not on me. That's on my bank. Uh, so I'm not able to see them, but Aziel was able to share some pictures with me. And I was able to see the preview on hakasenshae.net of Volume 41. You can see the posters there for free. Yeah, uh, they're allowing extended previews uh, until January 6th. That's why you could see the posters. I think otherwise you, they would just show the cover. No, I think the I think that usually ends just after the character guide the character oh, guide section. Interesting. Usually, it's okay. only the first. It, it ends like on the first page or something. Third third page of three fifty eight. Yeah, because it says there's an extended uh, preview scene going on for all Berserk volumes until uh, yeah January six, mm. I think, on the website. Well, with Zeranki, at least you can flip through the entire first uh, episode. I think it's forty something pages. Oh, that release of Zeranki. Um So the volume the volume posters are new. One of them is very interesting, I think. Uh, one is of Molda. By the way, name spelling confirmed. Azil, pat on the back for you. Because <laughs> I have been saying Morda, I think. Uh, somehow that rolls off the tongue better than Molda. It's mold. You don't want to say mold. Yeah, it's because, I mean, it's just because to English people, mold is like, eh, moldy. Yeah, but, uh, yeah it's Molda. And uh, to be fair, Pula is probably the one who deserves uh, credit because... It's just, uh, when you understand how Japanese people construct katakana, it's like more likely, just in terms of probabilities, that it would be an L and not an R for this kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like how you would say Mulder, for example. So, um, yeah. But yeah, anyway, it's, it's an L, which is what we had uh, been saying. Uh, and yeah, it turns out to be correct. So the two posters, one is of Molda, which looks way more like Miura's art than the other poster. Uh, one of them looks like a, just a straight up new picture from Miura that I was not expecting. Again, I think we speculated about whether this volume will even have posters, given the posthumous nature of it. Yeah. If he had planned that far ahead. So getting anything new was a really great surprise. And mm-hmm. one of the last surprises I would expect to see of Miura's work that we have not seen. Uh, so that's probably it. Uh, I, I like it. I'll tell you what's strange about the Molda image is that for some reason, it looks very modern to me. I don't know if it was the color choice or something, but it looks very, I don't know. It looks like a newer series or something. It doesn't have the same like older composition style that I'm used to with Mira. I don't know. Something uh, struck me as newer about it. Yeah, well, so the colors are very vivid, I guess. Yeah. That blue sky and stuff. I do think... Part of it, I think, is that he's probably like he had probably done a, a bunch of the work on it, but then it was finished by the the assistants. So, for example, the the colors might have been uh, part of what they added. I'm thinking about the hair because oh yeah, initially, we'll get to uh, the hair. Yeah, okay, well, sure. No, you're no, that's, about the colors. You make a good point because if you look at the poster art, most of them are muted colors. They're rarely garish or blaring with color, with like you know life. They're usually they're typically subdued. Would you agree with that, Grail? Uh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry, the hair. Yeah, it's a surprising color. Yeah, it's uh, kind of auburn or I don't know reddish, reddish brown. Yeah. 
like you said, and she's got. I mean, it's pretty clear she's got uh, black hair in the in the manga. The way it's drawn, at least to yep. me, it looks pretty. And it, especially the scene. Uh, so the poster is uh, of the scene where we first see her when she's on a flying on a broom, and mm-hmm. uh, she's unleashed the uh, weaker man on uh, on the group. And so it's a, it's a really great uh, shot, great composition. I like it. Uh, but yeah, that hair is just, eh, I don't know. Then again, Mira has never been to, like, he doesn't care. Sometimes when it fits better to put a different hair color, he will do it. So mm-hmm. who knows? But yeah, so that's uh, maybe what's surprising about it. But it does feel like this one does feel like his heart. Uh, yes. Versus. It's immediate. Yeah. Versus. It's a, it was immediate upon seeing it. The other one with uh, which depicts uh, Skull Knight and Danan in the in the cave, uh, where the grave uh, is, uh, it's very clear that uh, most of it was not done by him, and it's not it's not very good, unfortunately. Yeah, that bummer. one's a bummer um, for a couple of reasons. First, it's that I really like that scene. I still get chills when I think about that scene. Uh, between Skull Knight and Denon because of what that whole reunion there is implying about their past. Because they're they're at that grave. They're both on either side of it and are themselves from our own estimation of those characters. Those they're they are vestiges of who they were as well. So the grave is like the real thing. A real, you know, body was buried there. And Denon is like a reincarnation of whoever that is. And Skull Knight himself is like a encased soul of his past. So it's just this really thoughtful reunion for these characters at this this place. Uh, And this depiction is just severely lacking um, to me. What could have been a really cool poster. Like if that was the subject matter that Miura had planned and yet he wasn't able to finish it, man, I would have loved to have seen his original vision for that personally. Yeah, for sure. It's um, it would have been a great one if he could have done it. But as it turned out to be, yeah, it just feels like a, a missed opportunity. It's a, it's a bit uh, same deal for the vignette, the little vignette that's inside the uh, you know the cover flap. Uh, right. It's uh, yeah, it doesn't look good. It's obviously not something he did. Uh, it shows uh, Tune, uh, Kuka, and uh, Yoni uh, mm-hmm. in a funny in a funny scene, and yeah, very obviously not from Yura. Uh, you say. You say first of all, you say it's very obvious. I, it wasn't super obvious to me when I saw it because, and I'm not discrediting it. To me, it wasn't obvious because Mira often does whimsical panels for those, you yeah. know, and they're in a you know the t- tone of it emotionally is consistent with how he's done that in recent volumes, you know, and it kind of fit. I don't know about the art itself, but like I could see Mira doing something goofy like that there. Yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, it's in tune with what he would have done. It's not mm-hmm. uh, the subject matter. Uh, the fact it's a kind of comical shot, great. It's just the art. I mean, you see the art. It's just, I mean. It's not there. No, I, I'm looking at it right now, and I totally see what you guys are saying. Like, the layout, the overall layout of the artwork would be something Miro would do. But mm-hmm. it, the the faces and the positioning, it just looks like it's kind of copy-pasted. And... Uh, yeah, it's really strange to look at. Damn. The poster of Skull Knight and Dana in particular is just, I guess what bothers me about it is that there was like, a, it looks like there's a lack of effort in terms of like, well, we have elements in the foreground that are in focus, but right. we also have, 
items in the middle that are in focus, but everything else has a massive blurry filter on it. It's just like, this doesn't look, these things aren't married together. These different elements aren't joined together in a way that's pleasing to look at. Right. Unfortunately, it looks very, very disjointed and that's really unfortunate. And, and just in general, like I know with, with the Piskies, like it would be difficult to show them with like shading because they're also glowing, but they, right. they look like they're literally copy pasted onto the page, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And also, I mean, Mira has shown Puck without a glow before when it was convenient for the painting uh, because just it made sense, right? So it's not a case where you always have absolutely, I mean, the art takes precedence to on, on the rest, right? And uh, mm-hmm. for some of those, I mean, there's one that's just, it's like a, a blot of yellow color. <laughs> you know? yep. Yep. So there's yeah. even nothing there. So I feel like I'm even wondering if maybe Mura just did uh, like the Skullite and Danan and he had like sketches for these. Yep. Uh, the guys added maybe some finishing touches and then they did all the rest to try to, because they couldn't just keep these two uh, with nothing else around. And uh, yeah, it doesn't look very good in the end. It's it's a shame. This is something I've been thinking about a lot. How much material they had to work with. Obviously, 364 was able to be brought over the finish line. And that's awesome. I'm super grateful of that. Yeah. 364 was, I mean, it's very clear it was almost done. Yeah. There was almost nothing left to finish. That itself is a, a episode in sequence, right? 363, 364 is part of a sequential story that Mira had completed a lot of the art for. But I imagine the studio is left with scraps of a lot of stuff, probably. And I'm just guessing here. Yeah. This poster in particular, they have to make an editorial decision about what to complete and what to not complete. And it seems they made a decision here. Let's go ahead and finish this one. But I wonder, yeah, it's just like, was that the right decision to make or not? I'm left to wonder about that myself, given that it's not great. Um, I, I, honestly, I think it could, would have been fine without this particular poster. And it, it just leads me to question what would be approved or not approved in this scenario moving forward if they have scraps of things that aren't finished that can be finished, but should they be finished? These are the things I was thinking about looking at that poster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's always the problem, right? Uh, I mean... I think they could have been fine just having the Molda one because yep. uh, that one was clearly more advanced. And so when you look at the finished thing, I mean, it's honestly, if you told me, well, that's just Mura, nothing was added, nobody touched it, I'd be like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. I can believe that. Fine. Yeah. Looks good enough. Uh, even though, like I said, the inking on it looks a bit, I mean, the, the, the way the color is applied, I don't know. But who knows? Maybe, Maybe he did. But yeah, the other one, very clearly, uh, even the cover, I don't know exactly what they did, how they did it. Um, yeah, whatever. I guess, I guess, as long as it's, well, we had to finish, we had to do that volume, we had to publish it. We wanted to have the two posters, so we did that. I can understand that reasoning. But uh, it becomes more complicated if in the future they say, well, well let's, let's pull something out, and then it's just a half as job and you're like eh. it's like that fresco of uh of jesus you know the one i'm talking about yes yeah. the, the one that got the special treatment <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah fixed yeah 
They fixed, fixed it. That yeah. lady fixed Restored. it for <laughs> the rest of human history. Oh, my Fantastic gosh. Fantastic work. Great. Oh, you, my gosh. You finished it. You finished the piece. <laughs> fixed what weather had done to it. Yeah. Oh, great. I see what you mean, Walter. And uh, while this isn't as memeable as that is, <laughs> this is an example that's similar. It's like you can really it, – it's easy to take for granted, I think, Mira's uh, level of skill and how he was really able to bring a composition together even one that could seemingly be disjointed. And this is, I think, uh, unfortunately, yeah. an example where they weren't able to replicate his style perfectly. And I don't think he would have approved this, to be honest. I mean, not to be mean, but I, I don't yeah. think that No, would. I agree with you. And that, 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 is, that is the question, right? The litmus test is, would Miura have released it in this state, given that he was someone that delayed episodes until they were ready to be released? And delayed of the work. I mean, d- deadlines themselves were not as important as him giving a stamp of approval on this thing being ready for the public, you know? Right, right. So that's what I'm thinking about. And I'm imagining there is a contingent of people that are just like, hey, it's an extra poster. I mean, I would rather have it than not have it. I'm just not in that camp. I want it to feel authentic. I want it to feel like something that Miura would have released. And I just don't get that vibe with this one. And it just, it's just a little unsettling. Right. Yeah. And just out of respect for him and his vision, you know, we mm-hmm. don't want to be fans saying I'm ready to consume anything that anybody draws as long as Mira touched it like at 1% at the beginning, you know, cause that's not, that's not what he would have wanted. Mm, yeah. Well, it's a, uh, I mean, there's the eternal problem of people who are fans of the brand, not so much of the work, uh, mm-hmm. who, you know, the love berserk mobile, uh, plugin game, uh, for some kind of garbage thing. Yeah. It's a berserk thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or, you know, the patchy slot stuff in Japan where it's just basically a gambling machine. Like, it's a... <laughs> but, yeah, sure. I mean, as long as it's Berserk, I love it. Uh, I love gambling and I love Berserk. <laughs> yeah. I love Apache sluts. <laughs> <laughs> you you guys laugh, but uh, these machines are being sold for super cheap nowadays. You can see them on auctions. And they, so, because they're like uh, 10, uh, something like, I guess, uh, 25 uh, pounds, you mm-hmm. can't just ship them. So it's all, it's only pickup uh, delivery. You, you've got to go there and pick them up. But I swear, if I could, I would buy one and send it to Walter. <laughs> uh, I, I would I would accept that delivery. Yeah, you probably have to pay. I don't know. I don't know how much. Uh, in, in don't taxes. make sure your check is a gift and write value of object zero. <laughs> yeah, deliver to Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> uh, to you, those to things. Your... Okay, maybe those that are listening aren't that familiar with these. Like. To be clear about my weird fascination with them, I, I, there's a little thread about these, and I posted about them over several years. Just here's another one. Here's another video I found of someone scoring real big. And what's funny about these machines is that when you get a high score, it makes a, sh- a sound of guts swing the dragon slayer, like, Aah! and then an actual dragon slayer, miniaturized, kind of like comes down on the screen, like on a physical one, and then it goes, it's just, it's. Kind of cool in a really stupid, over-the-top way. Yeah, it's, it. it's those modern uh, slot machines, basically, where there's a storyline and there are tons of shit and blah, blah, blah. And But at the end of the day, it's just, uh, you know, those three things that turn and uh, you got to get mm-hmm. the three sevens to win or whatever. But, yep. uh, yeah, it's it's a very, how to say, gamified. And you've got uh, cinematics which is even like it's they've got they, they did their own cinematics for this so it's pretty and they're pretty, pretty good pretty, yeah, yeah actually, I think you could see them on YouTube or something yeah yeah they're better than the um, 
2016 uh, animation. <laughs> Without, they're better than the 2013 oh, animation. Big Damn. time, big time. Damn. <laughs> and yeah, that, that was actually my original point is that some people were like, uh, 2016 animation, oh yeah, I love it. I don't care. It's, uh, it's not that bad, guys. And it's mm-hmm. like, with, with that kind of crowd, uh, no matter who mangled and shitty and, uh, how to say, dishonorable it is, as long as there's Berserk stamped on it, they love it. So, yep. yeah, there's, there's, there's that kind of crowd among the fandom. And, um, and yeah, I guess we do not belong to that category. I guess not, but we'll probably keep hearing from them. Uh and as long as we're interested in the series, as long as we're still talking about Berserk, as long as anyone's still talking about Berserk, there's probably going to be two camps, I would bet. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Although I would imagine the people who just want more will eventually move on to something else uh, mm. that, that can accommodate their desires uh, by releasing an endless amount of crap, you know? Uh, because it's mm-hmm. true uh, nowadays uh, in Japan, but also in the US and, and other uh, countries, you've got a lot of uh, diversification for IPs. So whether it's, it begins as a movie or a novel or a comic book or whatever, a video game, they'll make more of it in different mediums, uh, like novels, uh, games, adventure games, mobile phone games, blah, blah, blah. So I think Berserk has been, uh, how to say, has not been very, has not, how to say, not many of these things were released for the series. Uh, some people might want more of them to be in the future. Not sure that will be the case. And if so, uh, maybe that, that category of people will just move away from it. I don't know. I, I Honestly, I've not given it much thought at all as far as like how the brand would be used in the future. Given that it was used for very to me low budget mobile apps in japan um if it was used for such low things as that why wouldn't it be used like that in the future well uh, out the, of respect the thing is um so all, all these games were usually based on the anime license so you see they've got the, those licenses mm-hmm. you're right you're right and it's it's a it's a way it works in japan they've got this whole media mix business where they do have the committee. So for the movies, it was a Berserk film partners. And for the anime, it was a, I forgot something else. And that license is used. Uh, so they have to use the same titles. They can use the characters, but it has to be the same likeness and that kind of stuff. They can't use stuff from the manga. It's pretty, it's pretty complicated and weird. Um, and I agree that, I mean, if they have done that stuff, why not keep doing it? But unless there's another anime project, I don't think we would see more of these uh, things uh, like going on in the in the future. Eventually, mm-hmm. it will stop, right? Because now the anime is uh, five years old, so it's gonna it's gonna stop at some point, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the future that that makes sense. Uh, I'm not trying to pivot off of that saying. I don't think so. It's more. I can't imagine what the next five years would bring for Berserk. I I, I don't think anything. Personally, if yeah. I'm asking, if there's a gun to my head, I would probably say nothing is going to happen with the Berserk license in the next mm. five years or so. Ten years, 20 years, that's too far out for me to say anything. Mm. Yeah, I don't mm. know. It's hard to say. I don't think they'll, I don't think they'll be doing nothing. Uh, I would expect maybe art books. Like oh, that'd pro- be great. Proper ones. Well, yeah, I mean, now 
they've got the drawings, they've got nothing else to do. Eh, why not? Yeah, sure. And um, probably a deluxe edition in Japan, I would, I would think. Mm. Uh, oh, a deluxe edition of the manga, you mean? Yeah, 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 obviously. And uh, I'm guessing if they do one in Japan, then that will unlock uh, maybe doing one uh, in France, which uh, doesn't have one in uh, a bunch of other countries. In the US, it's complicated because... Dark Horse uh, Holiday has got uh, the uh, leather, uh, full leather bound ones. So Faux um, leather, yeah. Yeah. The leather quality that is apparently um, getting worse over time as the newer newer editions <laughs> come out. It's getting even lower quality uh, than it started. Yeah. So much to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, what does a deluxe edition even mean? To me, it means, it means oversized pages, which the deluxe edition in Dark Horse technically does. But it also means like how it's assembled, right? How yeah. how it's bound, the paper quality. Those are things that aren't great. With Translation the and print quality haven't haven't drastically changed either, correct? No, absolutely not. No, no, no. There's no big difference between mm. the paper quality and the binding at all within the, the, the deluxe edition and the standard edition. So yeah. that's where I would love to see a Japanese edition come out. And nail those things. If they, I mean, if they do it in Japan, they'll do it properly, which means they'll probably rescan, uh, yeah, like all the pages. Probably redo a lot of the stuff. Uh, maybe reposition. Of course, they, they don't have a, like they don't need to translate, so that's easy. Yeah. Maybe maybe use you know uh, how to say higher grade paper, higher grade ink, uh, and a more expensive and refined inking process. Add more posters, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it would be pretty nice. Of course, the, the big problem is uh, if you don't read Japanese, you're not getting the full experience. So that's where uh, foreign publishers would come in. Uh, the only problem is, like in my dream scenario, it would be Hakusensha ensuring that the quality, the actual physical quality of the book is great. While the uh, foreign local translator, uh, I mean publisher, would ensure that the, there's a retranslation done and that it's qualitative. But uh, yeah, I don't know. For Dark Horse, that would put them in an awkward position, wouldn't it? Be well, like, I mean, here's the other deluxe edition that we didn't do. Oh boy, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Well, they would have to be a partner of it, but uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, as long as they find a way to get more money from it, I'm sure they wouldn't care. If, if like, they could sell uh, an even more Dulux Premium Plus Plus uh, Double Advantage, uh, whatever, <laughs> and it's just no, no, no. That's not going to be a barrier for Dark Horse. They won't hear any complaints from me. I'll buy. I'll buy that version. Yeah. So this was a longer tangent about the release of Volume Forty One and the future about future of Berserk. Now that the final volume is out. Uh, there is a couple, there's two small things I wanted to say about volume 41. The, the last is, or the first is at the end of the volume, there is a little message to fans. And uh, I think, Jazeel, you actually have a translation of it on Patreon. Yeah. Uh, but the gist of it is that it's basically the same message you got in Young Animal uh, that we already had saw, had seen. Yes. Uh, go ahead. So, yeah, basically it's a modified version of the same message. Uh, so it's to all the fans. Thank you for reading Berserk and for your continued support. Uh, the final episode, volume 41, is a final manuscript on which Kentaro Mura Sensei worked while he was alive. They go on about that. And then it, basically after that, it's the same message. Uh, what everybody, of course, cares about is that they say, we are sorry, but the future of the series is undecided at this time. 
mm-hmm. among other things. Some people, uh, like we said, some people who are hopeful that anybody can continue it, the assistants, uh, even the janitor of the uh, Hakusensha building could continue Berserk, no problem, are taking it, of course, as a sign that it's sure thing, it, it will be done. I think knowing how Japanese people tend to express themselves and the vagueness of uh, Japanese language, it's best to think of it as just we have nothing to announce. There's no plans. And that could be like indefinite. There's no plans. We have no plans right. to announce right now. And they could uh, keep saying that for 30 years and yeah, that would be it. Uh, but yeah, the gist of it is they have nothing to announce and the message is the same. Yeah, I guess that the the subtext there is that they are they remain at least partially license holders for the property. And it just really means there's nothing we aren't we aren't doing anything with Berserk and there are no plans to do anything with Berserk. Well, I mean, they they don't go as far as to say we have no plans to do anything. They just say right now nothing is decided and there's nothing to announce, right? And I would I would I do expect that they're uh, exploring options, or at least they will explore options at some point in the future uh, as to what could be done to maybe bring the series to an end that would be uh, satisfactory for the readers, long-time readers, that kind of stuff. But, uh, I mean, nothing's guaranteed. It would be a very complicated uh, undertaking. And I feel like they will be careful with that. And, uh, I mean, people shouldn't expect... Like so, like I said, we were talking about earlier, people who expected the advertisement in the newspaper to be about the continuation of the series. I mean... That's just, I mean, it's delusion. Uh, yeah, it's a wish, wish, it's wishful thinking. Yeah, it's yeah, because it, it would be the next thing to happen, and so it's over eagerness for that thing to happen. Yeah, it's uh, it's very complicated. I think, for example, it's it's doable to imagine uh, they would release uh, not really an art book, but a book containing sketches and ideas and stuff like that, but that Murad uh, jotted down uh, for the future. Maybe if he had like. Uh, I mean, he must have had many sketch sketchbooks with many ideas right. for many things. You know, the only problem is how do you take that? How do you organize it? How do you decide what's publishable or what Mira wouldn't have wanted people to see in an unfinished mm-hmm. state because it was right. unfinished? Uh, very complicated. And also, I mean, once you publish that, you're basically saying, okay, that's it. There's not, I mean, now we can't. Yeah just uh, do anything else because we've spoiled you how the story was going to to go. So, yeah, it's just complicated. And and at the same time, they can't just give it to some other guy and say, well, okay, based on that, you just do your thing. Because (laughs) the risk is that we get some, uh, just something that's not on the level, right? Like we got with those posters. Uh, You get one that's pretty good because uh, it was probably almost finished and you get one that's not very good because it was still rough and whoever took over uh, just couldn't do it. And that's, that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's it's the, it's the, the endless topic. It's the topic we'll never, we'll never unfortunately finish talking about, but yeah, I I don't think it would be, first of all, I don't think it would be appropriate to just take whatever Mira had on his desk and then slap it on it and charge fourteen ninety five for it. I think that'd be weird. Uh, something similar happened with Kurt Cobain and his after he died. I think it was like ten years ago, fifteen years ago. 
someone had published like his notes, like his notebooks, like things that his personal diary entries and shit like that. Like I don't right. know how these stuff that were weren't intended to be made public. Totally not. Never intended for public dissemination. But hey, somebody profited off of it, and like it's just super gross. Right. Um, right. It's it's a weird balance where obviously somebody wants to make money off of this work and continue and you got that Tupac situation where it's like oh we'll take these old recordings and we'll have Justin Timberlake do a, a track with them and it'll with be Tupac a full song and Biggie. yeah, yeah. <laughs> have I mean, do a I'm, duet <laughs> yeah it's, these would not be diary entries but I, I think that same like what's the word it has the same connotation because the it was never published and he never said publish this you know as far as we know so the question then becomes what to publish uh, and what not to publish if they're going to go that route. Yeah, and it's very right. difficult to do. And we'll see it uh, when we talk about Duranke. Uh, between the original idea you get and the final product on the page, sometimes yeah. a lot can change because you get other ideas which modify your the other one. You evolve, you think that finally maybe something isn't that good, so you keep an aspect, you remove another. And so that's that's part of how work is created. And it's also what we saw uh, with the sketches, the sketchbook that was released uh, for the crowdfunding campaign for the uh, Big Bear Suck exhibition. We, mm -hmm. we got the manuscripts uh, for three episodes, including the one where we see Geyserich uh, in the previous eclipse of the past, and uh, or he we get he gets to fight uh, with a former incarnation of the God Hand, and the designs of these guys, some of them uh, changed between the, that uh, manuscript and uh, the final finished uh, version of the episode, and like presumably that was just a last minute decision or something. Mm -hmm. I just did when he was inking the fin finished product. It was like hmm, now nah, actually I like it better like that, and so. I mean, that's technically a minor thing, but it's a big change. And it, it's the same for, like, every single aspect, every element, every character, every weapon, every location, any panel on any page could be the case. And it just, it goes to show that not only with the art, but also with the story is that Miura didn't have things set in stone in his mind until he did the art and did those manuscripts for them. And even then we saw the manuscripts alter, right? Yeah. So he said it himself that, you know, he kind of leaves some elements loosely open so he can use them later, which we saw with the usage of the demon child and the moonlight boy and all that, or sorry, the boy in the moonlight, etc. But let's say he had such notes tucked away in his desk somewhere uh, with that do it? Is that all it takes? You take, oh, they're going to end in Falconia with a big climactic conclusion. Like, okay, great. But <laughs> how do we get there? A and B, is this actually where he would have gone with things? You know, who who the fuck can know? Mm. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a matter of how detailed the notes would, the notes would be. And, and then, yeah, very complicated because uh, like we said, the devil is in the details, right? I mean, we've talked about it many times before, yeah. but the overarching story, no problem. But as you get closer and closer to each episode, each page, each panel, that's where it's insane. And that's where it just falls apart. Because even for us, I mean, I, I consider myself a pretty big Berserk fan and even a kind of a scholar of the work, you know. But uh, how do you like... First page of uh, episode uh, 265. First page. I can't tell oh, you yeah. what it would be. I mean... I can tell you the first two pages. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> I uh, yeah. honestly, I mean, gut swing is sword, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but my point is, where do you go after that? What what's the look on Casca's face? Does oh, she, I know. Does she scream? I mean, does she? You know, it's uh, it's crazy. We're we are experts of Berserk, but we're also consumers of Berserk first and foremost, and it's really hard to me to put me in the space of saying. How would Guts react to this in a way that would be very much like Guts? And I imagine, and I don't know for sure, but I imagine that if I can't decide what Guts would say in a particular scenario, I don't I don't know who do I trust to step in that position and write down those words. Because like how a character acts, reacts, feels, those are the core of a story. And I know people would say the A to B to C to D of the story is where, you know, how they get from A to B to C to D is, is the core of the story. Nah, I don't think so. I think I think Berserk is a character-driven story. Stuff happens, but it happens to the characters and about the characters. There uh, so, are so many little moments and reactions that, yeah, make up a scene. It's it's, it's multi-layered. Yeah, Guts, Griffith, Casca, what they would say to each other when they finally see each other again. All these things, like, I, I don't want to make guesses about such a thing. You know, I would want to place that in the hands of someone who would know. And I don't know who would know anymore. Because that's the big problem. Yeah, and you know, even if you even if you ignore that, even if you say, okay, don't I don't care about the characters. All I want is I want to see what happens. Guts and Griffiths in Falconia. I want to see what happens to the world and what the Godin's plan is. Uh, even for that, I mean, I'll, I'll even go farther. Even if you have a description... Like written on paper, what happens? There's a big difference between a description on paper of, say, uh, you see a wave of rats and it's Conrad who forms out of them and it uh, falls onto a city and the people are devoured. Okay, that's the thing. Then you see it on the page drawn by Mura with the angles, with the choice to put a yeah. face here, uh, uh, do something like that. It's just... You can't replicate that uh, because it's a visual sense, and I mean that's that's the part of what the genius is for a, a, a mangaka, right? A, a comic book artist is how do you depict something visually? How do you cut the panels? How do you put the sound effects? How do you do everything? And so, just even from a precise description on a page, you can't easily uh, just re- replicate it. And that's that's something. I mean, that's part of what is lost. Uh, with with Mira's passing and can't be recovered. And no matter how you do it, even if you got another great mangaka, not just some obscure assistant, but someone who's actually um, preeminent, it can't be the same because it's not no, the same I person. Would, if someone has that level of talent, I I would like to imagine and I hope that they're off doing their own thing. Like they would be yeah, hampering their own vision and their own creativity. To breathe, to reanimate something that might not even be successful. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. As as often with these kind of things, the people who are good enough to do it uh, will have the respect not to do it. Yeah. Uh, and also, I, I, I agree. Respect for themselves because they want to do their own thing, and also for the original author. Uh, and when you see, like uh, like I said, uh, famous mangaka, a lot of them are fans of Berserk even were inspired by Berserk. I, I feel like if you ask them, well, would you take over? They would say, just no, I would not. Uh, for many reasons, and that would be it, right? Yeah. Yeah. That even goes for the assistants. Uh, I saw a tweet from uh, Kurosaki, uh, you know, the oldest current assistant, who said that he was thanking people as someone who contributed to Berserk and saying he was glad to get Volume 41 as a fan of Berserk himself. 
So it also mm-hmm. shows that even the staff, you know, part of them were also just fan of the work, uh, even though they contributed to it. And it shows it's not something, I mean, again, it's not something that can just go on without Mira. Yeah, which is a halfway decent segue to, uh, uh, other than the message at the end of volume 41, the only fundamental difference that I know of is, Azil, you mentioned there were a few minor art changes to the pages in volume 41. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a couple panels where I had noticed that were pretty obvious to me. Uh, they, were, they had been, uh, how to say, t- touched up after Mira was gone. I mean, there's more than a couple, but uh, yeah. There's one especially where you see Guts' uh, artificial uh, hand and it's just it's not very well done. Uh, when he's playing with the kid. Uh, yeah, 364. we were talking about that. Yeah. yeah. And so they added some shading to it. So it's hmm. less, I mean, it doesn't jump out to you as much as it, it was in the episode. There's another one where his face, uh, where I think we also talked about it when he's behind the leaves. They, I feel like they slightly touched up his mouth. It's very, very, uh, very slight, but also an improvement. And uh, I mean, yeah, again, if you want to peruse the thing and look at it uh, with a magnifier, you can see, oh, this face here, it looks a bit odd, probably touched up by an assistant. Stuff that uh, Mira likely didn't have, have time to finish. He did the rest of the scene, but not that face, and, and then uh, that to do it. But overall, I, I still feel like it's a satisfying episode. It doesn't bother me. I don't mind it at all. Uh, unlike, for example, the cover and... Uh, uh, Skull Knight and Danan uh, poster. Uh, really, no complaint with episode 364. I'm really glad we could get it. Uh, and it would have been a real waste not to publish it. Oh, agreed. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think seeing those other things uh, and, and 364 paired together, it, it, it's clear that the composition itself of the pages was done by Mira for certain parts and not others. Because the parts that he didn't do, you can you can kind of just feel it. It's like it's like a, it's like on the page, just the way things are arranged. Yeah, something just doesn't sit right. Uh, yeah, and with three sixty four, I didn't I didn't get that sense at all. Yep. Uh, so yeah, that's it for volume forty one. The other thing is that Duranki is now out. The volume, the full volume, which is the full series, is is out, uh, and. For those that don't know, is that Durunki was canceled around the same time that episode 364's uh, volume or issue was released back in September. They made an announcement that Durunki would not be continued. Um, so this is it. So in addition to the pages that are there that were already released, there's also a massive section at the end. I think you said it was around 80 pages, Azil? Yeah, it's uh, um, 82 pages, I believe, in total. Got it. And at first, we thought it was just sketches for where the story would go, but Azil did some translation, and it actually is more like the prototype for Duranki. You could call it the pitch for Duranki uh, of where the series was originally envisioned to be. And I don't think we've talked about that before on the site, or maybe you just posted about it last night, but I'll let Azil explain that part. Uh, yeah, so basically other than the six completed episodes, which I included, there's that uh, prototype scenario, is what they call it. Uh, it was called Amazones, uh, referring to the Amazons uh, from Greek mythology. 
so it details ideas and developments for a story uh, where the protagonist is not Usumgalu, but uh, modern-day Warnered, um, otaku in Japan, obviously, in Japanese, uh, who goes back in time and has to survive using his knowledge of uh, modern te- technology and battle tactics in that kind of a mythological era. Uh, so we can see on uh, one of the drawings that he's managed to create a rifle. There's also some sketches for steam tanks, uh, and other small trinkets. And there's the added twist that uh, he's a Bishonen type, so a pretty boy, basically. And he has to pretend to be a girl because he's uh, fallen in with the Amazons. And uh, if you don't know, there were female warriors, uh, female tribe, to, who did not allow males except for reproduction. And if they learned that uh, he, he was male, their law would dictate that he would get uh, decapitated. So, uh, so yeah, he has to pretend to be a girl, and there's a whole aspect around that. Um, and the, so it would take place during the Trojan War uh, era. Uh, so for those who don't know, the, uh, the queen of the Amazons, uh, whose name was Penthe Cilia, uh, took part. Uh, she was... Uh, defending the Trojan side uh, alongside uh, Priam uh, and she was killed by Achilles during the during one of the battles um, so Murad uh, sh- she had her be there he also had uh, other Amazons like um, her sister uh, Hippolyte uh, he had also Melanipe uh, he did uh, there's also Antiope uh, and Obviously, uh, heroes like Achilles, which I mentioned, Odysseus, Heracles, Perseus. Uh, we see uh, also there's a full pantheon of Greek gods in there. So Ares, Athena. Uh, well, I'm not going to name them all, but you get the, the point. Uh, we mm-hmm. see people from the, the other side. So Hector, Paris, um, sketches of uh, uh, Gorgon and a harpy and also... Uh, Pan, which uh, became the little sidekick of Usumgalu in the final version of Drunky. So yeah, it's um, it's pretty different from... Uh, I mean, it's got its differences from what eventually became Drunky. Uh, the protagonist is not the same. Uh, the era it takes place is not the same. But uh, very clearly, like the building blocks were there. You've got uh, gender issues at the center of it. With a character that whose gender is uh, ambiguous. Uh, you've got that idea of a new myth of revisiting a uh, mythological era, uh, but with uh, that aspect of uh, a character whose gift is inventing things, uh, mm-hmm. which became kind of the intuition of Usumgalu. Uh, and of course, the aspect of being a fish out of water, where you that character is not really at their place, but they have to make do and probably would uh, endure a variety of betrayals and stuff. So... So yeah, that's that's what it is. It's it's a very long, honestly. It has a lot of text, even detailing dialogue and stuff. So uh, I did not get to read through all of it because I mean it's Christmas, right? So I was busy. <laughs> but uh, it looks very interesting and very ambitious as well. So and it's also super cool to see. I mean, I'm personally, since I was a kid, I've loved uh, Greek mythology and seeing Mura's take on these characters. I mean, super cool. 
Yeah, this is taking me way back to like sixth and seventh grade when I was like a Greek mythology encyclopedia. Those days are long behind me, but I'm still like, oh, I recognize that person. So I'm really excited to buy the volume. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would have had a lot of reach if it, if it did actually evolve in that way. Instead of the starting point that Miura eventually landed on was Mesopotamian uh, mythology. Um, there were other things happening in Duranki too, though. Uh, like, for example, there's a giant arc in the first episode. Yeah. You know, So he's doing some – he ended up doing a kind of a marriage of several different mythologies. And I, I don't think the Greek gods, even though they're in a prototype – would have been written out. I, I can see. I could see how he would eventually migrate there with that character. Yeah, for um, sure. I would have loved to have seen that. And I think seeing them, I had. I was quite emotional about seeing this uh, because while you're seeing it and you're excited about it, you know that because you're seeing it, it means that it'll never happen. Because if that was ever in the cards, they would not have published this. And so that excitement comes at a price. And so that was really tough for me to get mm. through. Um, because Duranki was, it was like a real struggling child in school. Like you wanted to do really well. It wasn't very popular. A lot of people weren't giving it a chance. I bought every issue. I didn't follow it like insanely closely. I would let maybe a couple weeks go by. Then I'd remember, oh yeah, right. The new episode came out. I'll go check it out. And uh, I kept waiting for it to kind of find its footing. And I never had, I, I had hope that it would get there. I had faith that it would eventually get there. Um, but it never had a chance to do that. And that it, it hurt to see that happen. And it just kind of vanished in May 2020. Uh, right. And then we hear after Mira's death, I held out hope that it doesn't make sense for Berserk to continue for all the reasons we've already said, that it was wholly Mira's creation. But Duranki, there was a chance. In my mind, there was a chance that that team could get back together. And even though they didn't have a writer at the core, they'd find a way to lean on what was there and using mythologies as like a backbone or a crutch, they could get there somewhere interesting. Um, but hearing it being canceled and seeing these I means that's never going to happen. Um, so that was rough. And I know a lot of people might not might not have given Duranki a chance. I know vocally several people didn't give it a chance because the gender issues thing was a, a turnoff to them. Um, I think another issue, though, is, of course, that it's paired right alongside Berserk, a series that mm. everyone loves. Everyone is reading Duranki, who probably knows about and loves, but it's, it was struggling with consistent releases. Um, but the alternative there is to say, well, Berserk is Mira's primary focus, and he needs to restrain all of his other creative efforts to just Berserk. Like, that's not healthy. I, I wouldn't want him – I want him – I would want him – as a creator to be able to stretch his legs a little bit into other worlds uh, and to develop them while the fire is hot in his brain and not to just table them away and never breathe mm. life into them and not treat berserk like a job as a result, you know? So yeah, I'm and- glad he was able to do this, even if it did not reach its fruition. I'm glad we were able to see a little bit of that, a taste of what could have been in this series, but it is obviously uh, rough to see it snipped uh way before its time it's very bittersweet right yeah so this was a unique painful experience for me seeing these things here uh and yeah also i really like greek history in particular the trojan war is something that i was just only recently really really getting deep into uh myself so it was strange that that became a focus for these pages as well but it's a you know it is it's a perfect that particular era the Trojan War is for really, it's like it's where early history and mythologies overlap, they intersect in a way that 
so was Duranki. Duranki was doing that same thing. He's mm-hmm. establishing history and mythology and where they intersect is this new story. So it was a, a thematically appropriate destination for that story that story to go in. So that mm-hmm. would have been really cool to see. Yeah, regarding the what you said about Berserk and Duranki, I, I do feel like if, uh, for example, it had been published after Berserk was over, uh, reception would have been very different online. Uh, obviously, I mean, those numbers, I mean, just people's comments on forums and Reddit and whatever don't mean much. Uh, what, what really matters is, uh, if people are buying the magazine, if they're buying the volume, that's what really matters for a publisher. But yeah, I do feel like the reception would have been different if it had been published, uh, after the, uh, Berserk was over. And as far as, uh, doing other works, I feel like any, Professional artists, no matter what their field is, uh, can attest to the fact that being able to explore other things uh, is also a way to get your creative juices flowing, to replenish your creativity and uh, just, you know, uh, become more productive and have cool ideas for your main thing. If you just focus on one thing for too long, you just dry yourself out. And at the end of the day, you, you just can't do anything anymore because you're just, you're empty, right? So I think right. exploring all those things. Become stagnant. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, um, just to bounce off of what you said about uh, that specific era of the Trojan War, I do think it's clever what he did in the end. Uh, I feel like from that prototype, he decided to scrap the bit about the otaku Bishonen uh, who travels back in time maybe a bit cliche, and he decided to go for Mesopotamian mythology, which is not as well known. I mean, that's a, an euphemism, right? It's uh, ver- not very well known at all. Oh, yeah. And it's also obscure. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> the oldest. And so, very interesting. And to have the character of Usum Galu be neither a human nor a god, but with the name of a dragon, uh, and to have that special ability to invent things. And when you think back, I actually checked... Uh, when that time period would be. Because like you said, Walter is at the intersection of mythology and history. And so it's at the, really the frontier of ancient history and prehistory. It's obviously uh, Mesopotamia is when uh, the first writing came to be. And with those first written records, history began. And it starts at the third millennia uh, before the current era. Uh, and the Trojan War is supposed to have happened at around first millennia and a half uh, beyond the, uh, the current era. So I, I feel like it's very possible that to have, for example, Sumgalu have these uh, experiences uh, in the beginning of the series, which we saw, and then move on into the world. And as she grows up, uh, come to fall in with the Amazons. And then get to that uh, whole Greek aspect. And like you mentioned, that arc might also imply other encounters with other types of uh, mythos. Um, So, yeah, very... Like you, I was very blue uh, when I I saw that because it just made me think, man, now I really wish I could have seen what uh, Duranke would have blossomed into. Uh, That meeting of several mythologies... Uh, having that character uh, who just disrupts mythological events. So it's not something that's wholly new. It's been done before. I mean, even if you think about the 
latest God of War game, right? Where you get uh, Kratos who comes into the Norse mythology and fucks things up. But to have <laughs> it done by Mura and with uh, that specific aspect where you've got a character that's more like MacGyver's and Conan the Barbarian, right? Uh, whereas uh, Guts is just about, how to say, using his might and his sword and everything. Usum Galu is all about uh, intuition. And of course, that whole character aspect and the fact he's addressing gender issues, which is something I'm not... I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not personally very involved in that side of things, but it's pretty cool that uh, a guy born in the 60s and who's... I'd say cultural prime was the 80s, like like many of us uh, guys from the 80s, you know, uh, to address these, uh, I'd say, modern themes. Uh, just <laughs> just very interesting, right? Especially it reminds me of. Sorry, I was just going to say it reminded me of what you said when the series first premiered. Is how there were a lot of series that addressed that back, I guess, in the 70s and 80s, like uh, Rosa Versailles and yeah. that sort of thing. So it was a cool callback at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's what Mura himself said, actually. He was like, yeah, back in the day, we had a lot of uh, stories that took place in that era and who had uh, characters who were like, you know, boys who look like girls, girls who look like boys, uh, who addressed that whole androgynous aspect. And it became less, I guess, uh, how to say, less daring over time, maybe more commercial. And Mura was like, yeah, well, I'll go back to that. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he said, I want to show uh, as a younger, younger audience um, the charm of uh, older manga, what we mm. had back in the day, but mm. with this new series, which is also pretty cool and very much like him to, to be like, yeah, see what I liked when I was young, this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Well, it was not only risky and bold to make that gender issue such a core of this series, but also for an established seinen mangaka associated with big, burly, muscular heroes. You know, Guts uh, himself, very manly, a bloody sword, usually on the cover of most volumes, right? Uh, and then you look at Gigantomachia, which has, oh gosh, Adelos, uh, right? right? Yeah. Big, muscular guy yeah. wrestling. Different attitude towards life and uh, fights as Guts, but still very manly and physically strong. And then we mm. have Usum, who really, uh, she's a demigod and uses the power of her mind, not physical force. So mm. there's a, a departure to, to do something risky like that. Yeah. And I mean... To give me our credit, he he was always uh, daring and bold. I mean, Berserk, when the flashback starts, one of the first things that happens is Guts is raped. I mean, the main character, the strong, yeah, bad, sure. bad, you know, uh, how to say, dark uh, hero type. So it's very, I mean, for a series like that, it's so unusual. Probably Berserk is the only one that's ever done it. Uh, but yeah. He, it's very interesting, actually. I mean, I, I could talk about that for hours, but Delos is a very different character from Gus. But like you said, he's still a muscular guy, a wrestler. Uh, and then from that to go with Usum, who's uh, first a child at the beginning of the series, even though I think there would have been a, a time skip and yep, I agree. We, would have, we would have seen them grown up, which is what, the, by the way, but what the prototype shows. Uh, the protagonist in the prototype is... Uh, more of a teenager, or I would say like 17, 18, uh, young adult, between late teenager and, and, uh, and young adult. So I think we would have uh, seen that, that progression. And yeah, just to have that character who's uh, addressing very, I would say, universal and timeless themes 
of being accepted or rejected by others because you're different, having to contend with the fact uh, you've got a, a gift that's ne not necessarily well understood, uh, and just, of course, uh, handling complicated situations, whether it's a uh, manticore or other things like that. It was, I mean, super potent as a parent to see this storyline where Usum in the, in the beginning is putting herself out there trying to uh, become companions with these human, this group of humans. And it's her, it's her adopted grandfather kind of character. I don't know if he has a name or not. Um, he is basically advising her to be wary of humans and that she, you know, implying that she's destined to be rejected by them because she's fundamentally different and they're not mm. going to understand her. You know, as a parent, that's, that's always an issue is having your kid learn those lessons by themselves, knowing that a part of them is going to get damaged in the process. That's just part of being a parent, having a kid. So that particular part really resonated with me. And I really wanted to see that particular arc complete because I did expect that that childhood section would be wrapped up with Usum's betrayal by humans and that that would color her perception of humans as she got older. Mm. I really wanted to see where he would go with that. That's just where I thought things were going to go. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's also interesting to see... I mean, it's a... How to say, in that introduction section, you you talk uh, to Usum Gallo with uh, female pronouns. And, uh, and it's true, I would say... She's more like female presenting uh, in, the, in that section. But I feel like as we moved uh, towards uh, further in the story, maybe they would go uh, to, towards a more male presentation and maybe have a romantic pairing with a, a, a woman. Uh, which is also an interesting thing that I think Murad mentioned is uh, the fact being androgynous, uh, Usum would boss have romantic opportunities with men and women and would have to navigate these kind of things at different uh, parts of uh, their life. So just, um, yeah, just many... No, yeah, I should not have said she. I, I did it subconsciously. No, no, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not a problem. And it's also, I mean, that's part of, uh, how to say, what's interesting about that whole uh, setup. Uh, the fact it's a character who's got both genders it's not agendered it's not transgendered it's not it's just both genders at once and depending on maybe how they feel how they want to present at some time you know it can be referred to as one or the other left it wide open it would have been really fascinating to see how that particular element would have developed for sure mm -hmm. and i also like the idea i mean i also equate it with rickert the, the idea of being an inventor. I, I, I was a fan of MacGyver as a kid, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, same. One of my favorite shows as yeah. a kid. Easily. I, what I do enjoy and forever will enjoy God's prowess, I do quite like a clever clever guy or clever girl. Someone who yeah. wins through their smarts. Yeah. Yeah, engineering and STEM skills, as they call them now, are, are real hot right now. They have been for like a decade. Yeah, and it's also interesting because it's it, it's very different from, for example, what Shuke does, right? Where she's got uh, in Berserk an understanding of the world and she's got all that esoteric knowledge with magic so she can call upon powerful beings to, to aid her. But it's different from being really an inventor and someone who's got like the power of intuition. 
who can intuit something like, hmm, if I do this and that, then this will happen and the result will be this. I also feel like it's very difficult, or not maybe very difficult, but at least it's not necessarily very easy to convey in a story because you, you've got to be pretty clever yourself to make a character feel clever within a story uh, with other characters. I don't know if it's clear what I'm saying, but I've seen, uh, I remember reading the sequel to uh, Hyperion, the science fiction novel. Yep. And there's a, in the sequel, there's a character who's supposed to be like, he's supposed to not be very smart. From the beginning, he's like, well, I've never been the smartest guy. And so, and through the story, there's things that happens, and the guy doesn't necessarily get it. But the problem is, like, I'm a normal human as a reader, and I can definitely tell where the writer is going with it. And so from the beginning, I'm like, it's not believable. This moron wouldn't get it. It's not enjoyable for me to read this story. And so I feel like the inverse is also true. For a character to be super smart and come up with smart things, it needs to be both understandable by the reader, but also feel like the reader says, yeah, damn, that's pretty smart. And yeah, it's not an easy thing to do, I think. Right. Right. It's one thing to do the research. It's one thing to go to, where where did Mira go? Go to Europe and look at the boats and be able to actually convey that information in a compelling way, you know? He didn't go to Europe, though. He went to uh, an amusement park in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little bit closer. We thought (laughs) it was Europe for a while. And then we realized, or actually, Raziel realized it was not actually there. Yeah, he went to uh, an amusement park that reproduced the first, or one of the Dutch ships that uh, came to Japan back in the day. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. That's it for Duranki, unfortunately, both for the volume and the series and also this part of the podcast. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back to do the volume 27 reread. And to continue our reread of volume 27, I will take the first episode. But before I start that, I wanted to say this chunk of 27 is really all about Ganishka, who, you know, we saw on the last page of uh, this past reread in the previous episode. But the formal introduction to him and who he is and his place in the Berserk world is all established in this one meaty episode. And he's great. Yeah, he's great. I don't remember. Have we ever done a focused podcast on Ganishka? I couldn't remember. I don't think we did. Yeah, don't think so. But it's one of those obvious ones that we could easily talk for a whole episode about Ganishka. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly. And I uh, mean, so I'm gonna... this, uh, this series of six episodes in volume 27 are just, I mean, super great. One of my, my favorites, so really showcase him so well and of course Mira's talent as a as a storyteller mm. love it yep. so I'll start it out with episode 331 uh, the episode starts in Ganishka's throne room as he receives the Bakiraka he says he's disappointed but not surprised that the Bakiraka could not complete their mission to capture the Falcon he's having his forces take control of the search and they are dismissed Silat's and Silat and the Bakiraka, sorry, Silat and the Tapasa, uh, two of them are surrounded by corpses and the devastation and Wyndham, and there are rumors of monsters lurking in the fog. Silat thinks back to seeing Zod and Albion and knows for that real monsters do exist, and he expresses reluctance about Ganishka and the cause that they found themselves allied to. But his dream compels him to break the cycle of bondage from his ancestors and reestablish a foothold in this new empire. 
Meanwhile, Ganeshka goes to Charlotte's chambers at the top of the Tower of Rebirth and tells her that he's given her enough time, and it's time to have a child as a way to bring peace to their nations. Really, it's to conquer their nation, of course. And as he forces himself on her, she's reminded of the king, her father's assault on her during the Golden Age, and she cries out Griffith's name. This makes Ganeshka realize there's a connection between Charlotte and Griffith, and he starts talking about how even though he recognizes that the Falcon is the member of the God Hand, he won't let them interrupt his own plans. And he defiantly says, this blood-smeared and defiled world belongs to me. I'll reign over this unclean world as a demon king and rebel against God. The episode ends with Sila and the Bakiraka finding, sorry, the Tapasa finding guards on the ground and realizing there are intruders nearby and a formless shape rises up out of the mist behind them. So here's the big guy, uh, the big adversary for this section of the series, Ganishka, uh, and he's positioned as an antagonist apostle, which is something that's pretty anomalous in the hierarchy of the God Hand and its minions. Yeah, but it's that's because he has his own plan for the world, and he's not going to simply bow down and give up his stake in the world just because a God Hand member was made flesh. So he has his own minions made in a fashion, uh, which we'll get to in the next couple episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an important one, this episode, because it establishes through the lens of Kanishka, who is someone with inside knowledge about the God Hand and the Apostles, which is not something we get a whole lot. We get a little bit from Wyald, a little bit from Zod, about what that relationship is like. And we learn from Kanishka that the appearance of Griffith signifies the transfiguration of the world, which is pretty key, right? Because that's a look at the future that we really haven't gotten very much of at all. Uh, and it establishes the effect that Griffith has on the apostles. It says that they're compelled to be with him and it's like the embrace of God. But Ganishka, of course, is not like them. You know, they're just cattle in his mind. You know, he has his own empire he's clinging to and Griffith and his plans are an interruption of that, a threat to it. And yet He's still a cog in this machine because even his little rebellion is all part of the plan that they have. Mm. Right. He, he doesn't know, obviously. Of course. Yeah. He, he can't know. And even if he did know, it wouldn't change anything. He probably no. would still fight it. Being who he is, unconquerable personality kind of person. Um, I've got a lot of individual notes, but I wanted to open it up early. Well, I'll say that uh, his monologue and his reasoning is fucking cool to me. Uh, yeah. And I love that panel of uh, hands outstretched towards the Falcon of Light. Uh, just great. Uh, I think it really, how to say, signifies well how they are drawn to, to him. And of course, I love his resolve to rule over a bloody and defied world uh, to stand against God. It's just just great. I mean, I think it's a magnificent way to introduce uh, an unlikely uh, opponent to Griffiths in this context. Mm-hmm. Right. You already have the bad guys, and here's a bad guy to the bad guys. Yeah, and I just love how he's kind of been indirectly teased because of all the talk about the Kushan Empire since, like, volume 18, I want to say, or even before that, where you kind of get this sense that there's this looming threat, and you're finally getting a look at him, and you're like, damn, this guy's cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's not your standard villain at all. I feel like he's almost like a meta villain, because... Mm -hmm. Again, we already have this established hierarchy of bad guys, and here's someone who's pitting himself against that structure. So it's interesting. It's an interesting arrangement of things because you wonder what the outcome will be because he's someone who 
he recognizes the superior power he's, uh, uh, you know, put himself against. And yet he has all these power of his own. He has his own pocket of power, as we'll learn in the coming episode. So it makes it, he's not just someone to get steamrolled. Yes, he gets steamrolled. But the arrangement <laughs> is that he it couldn't be, you know? It makes it, there's a little bit of tension in there that makes it interesting, I think. I also, and he gets steamrolled in the most spectacular fashion, yeah, totally. too. So. <laughs> I also think uh, it's a way for Mira to show us possible scenarios. Because one thing someone might be thinking when you just read Berserk in general and the early volumes is, well, why doesn't one of these apostles become a king? Yeah. They're so powerful and, and strong and unstoppable. Obviously, you'd think one of them would manage to, to conquer a kingdom and, and establish themselves. And then if one of them becomes a king or an emperor in this case, uh, why would they bow, keep bowing to these angels that sure gave them power, but hey, I'm a king, right? So I, I have all these armies, all that power. Would they relinquish it so easily? Would he just give his crown to a member of the God Hand? So with Ganishka, we've got an answer, and, and it's no. And there's another aspect, which is that Ganishka has some ability to use magic. And that's also another thing, is that uh, he's not just uh, one of the average dumb apostles who's got brute strength, but nothing else. He's actually able to, like you said, Walter, have minions, uh, thanks to Daiba. A lot of that is thanks to Daiba, obviously. Uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting way to set up that antagonist who uh, doesn't want to be a part of the plan, but of course, he's actually a big part of the plan. Him being, <laughs> him resisting is part of the grand uh, plan. That's right. Yeah. It's really cool. And it's established, of course, right uh, from the get-go, from this little uh, glimpse we get in uh, volume 27. This is, uh, there's a lot to look at if you were just attuned your eyes to each page. This is really a treat visually. Uh, I feel like it's like its own little world unto itself if you really just pay attention to the pages. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get a, actually, I think it's a glimpse of the Makara you can see above the statue on that two page spread in the intro. That's that long nose and those eyes give it away. Uh, I think it's a Makara. It could just be an elephant. I don't really know. Um, in those two pages, though, uh, this beautiful thing where Ganeshka's in the throne room, you know, he's surrounded by these massive statues, which I believe they're showing Mira's depictions of Hindu gods. Uh, so Devi is surrounded by snakes. Uh, Varaha is a half-boar, half-animal demigod. And behind Ganeshka is Durga, associated with destruction and wars and everything. But what's interesting is these are all religious iconography from a culture that we have almost no experience within Berserk. So it's all very striking and new. Um, of course, their only outlier to that is the fact that we do know about the Kushans through the Bakiraka, who are themselves outsiders to the Kushan Empire. But we've never seen the culture of this side of the world until these pages, really. Uh, visually, also, just to depart from the Hindu stuff for a second, just... It's one of the more memorable episodes visually for me. And, and Azil, you already pointed it out, but it's that the enigmatic idea of the, not enigmatic, the vis powerfully visual idea of the apostles with thorny arms clinging to the falcon or reaching for the falcon in the sky. That really sticks out to me, as does the following page, which is Ganeshka all in black except for his face. And behind him is the whole world with the sun like cresting it on the yeah. other side. The implication being that his empire stretches the entire world and that, he you know, he rules over this world. 
Mm. Yeah, I was about to say that uh, if I had to like say three things visually striking in this episode, it would be the throne room, which is just fucking badass. Yeah. Uh, all those statues, a pile of skulls, uh, everything about it. Uh, that panel of him with the earth and the sun rising. That and of course when he says that he's got the widest empire on the earth. So again, it it's, uh, serves perfectly to remind us that he won't give it up uh, without a fight. And I also think it's awesome to see the Tower of Rebirth again, uh, now being used to hold Charlotte in the upper rooms. Uh, Mira could have very simply used another building or mm -hmm. whatever and completely ignores that, but to just reuse that one, just great. Loved it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, the eye symbol on Ganishka, I was thinking about it because I don't actually uh, know what if there is a, a, what's the word, a cultural or religious significance to that particular usage of the eye. If there is, I've never seen it before other than Berserk. Um, but I wondered about that. And I think it's just, if I had to take a guess, it's probably a symbol of omnipresence or omniscience in terms of his power of fog. Anything that enters the fog uh, it becomes part of his awareness. So he's aware it's a of everything. It's big hint, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like surveillance. It's a drone system that he has <laughs> in his, uh, where, wherever he his empire spreads. Wherever the fog goes, he goes. That's how I saw the eyes representing. Yeah. No, I'm not that mentioned sure. it. It's, it's, it definitely it suggests that. Um, the other big thing for me in this episode was Silat. Uh, I've always found his reluctance here really fascinating because he is someone who's aware of more than most humans uh, in a way that really lines him up with guts. You know, he's not wrapped up in the same flow as the rest of these people are. You know, he's part of part of that is because he and the clan are outsiders. You know, they're not really part of the Kushan Empire. They've had to struggle for themselves and fend for themselves. So they're not going to get easily sw get swept up in, in any kind of movement without being very careful about it, right? So it's put them on the outside of the fringes of society in a way that got, so, was, so was Guts. And so he's had to be more critical mm. in how he viewed other people as well. Also... So, um, go ahead. No, I also like to think, and it's something they talk about much later when they are confronted with Jarif. Mm -hmm. The fact they have worked by training their bodies so extensively, pushing them basically to the limits of the human body, also means, how to say, to me it feels like it grounds them very strongly and makes them very pra pragmatic. And at least as far as Silat goes, very down to earth and uh, also with regard to like supernatural elements. Uh, because they've got that aspect of martial arts and martial training, mm -hmm. and that's a very... Like, those principles also color every decision they make. Even though, like Silat mentioned this episode, they are pretty much uh, desperate to regain their status within the Empire. Yeah, they're, they're self-reliant in a way that so is Guts, if you think about it. You know, he doesn't rely yeah. on any one force other than his own. Uh, same with the Tapasa and the Bakiraka. They train their bodies to be able to overcome any physical anything, except for, you know, well, apostles. But, uh, well, they did pretty well. It's a pretty even match. <laughs> yeah. um, what Silat says is, uh, was it truly proper of us to entrust our fate to that demon emperor? Uh, but later in the story, as Azil alluded to, we actually hear an echo of the same question. Uh, when Silat asks Jarif, is it wise to place your trust in things that are incomprehensible to human knowledge? Yeah. So hmm. through those lines, he's really establishing himself and the, the Bakaraka as, uh, as an outlier, just like Guts and his other companions. What I do like about their exchange at the beginning is that 
When Ganesha dismisses uh, the Bakiraka, he does so because he knows they can't possibly uh, match Griffiths. Mm-hmm. Because he knows his true power. And Silat objects, and I feel like he doesn't understand. He might think uh, he gets uh, taken off that mission because just the Emperor is displeased with their failure. Whereas I think it's implied Ganesha knows more about yep. the true nature of Griffiths, and he knows uh, even uh, human clan, as good as the Bakirka are, they're just not enough to take on a supernatural enemy like Griffiths. So mm-hmm. I, I, I found that interesting. Yeah, it makes you wonder why he even bothered to begin with. And I, I imagine it's just so he could have made, made the attempt. Yeah, and who knows? I mean, didn't hurt to try, right? It's not like he cares sure, about Sure, it cost them. him nothing. Yeah, it's not like he cares if they die. Yeah. <laughs> Grail, you, you mentioned it actually, end of volume 17, or actually towards the middle, when the Kushan Empire comes crashing down into Wyndham. Right. Uh, right into the king dies. You know, we see this uh, figured, this f- a figure on an elephant in shadow. And when Silat is referring to Ganeshka, when he's thinking about his choice, they show that again. So to me, that makes it official. Like that was Ganeshka. You see a mm-hmm. character that is, that is Ganeshka on top of an elephant. Uh, surely that's the same guy <laughs> as we saw in volume 17. Well, it also wouldn't but, make sense for Mura to show like some random general, right? Yeah. You're right. You're right. Uh, yeah. The other thing we didn't really mention here was Charlotte and Anna a lot. There's a lot going on in these scenes here. Uh, I'm, particularly the embroideries themselves are very beautiful. And it's almost mm-hmm. like you're getting a glimpse of like, you know, Miura drew these, but it's like Shoujo Griffith fan art that Miura yeah. drew. It's this weird <laughs> thing that happened on that. Um, but also the depictions that she chose and the arrangements are really interesting because it's it's not just Griffith, right? It's Griffith wrapped up in these very uh, miraculous angelic things, you know. Like he's I feel very like, idealized, yeah. I feel like they are echoes of her dreams. You mm, know, Griffith, of course, visited her as the Falcon of Light, uh, she, and she's like, you know, she's expressing how that felt or her memory oh, of Griffith yeah. as mm-hmm. angelic. She's been dreaming of him and uh, being saved by him. <laughs> yeah, over and over. I think Ganishka's strategy is, uh, is interesting here in, with regards to her. I think it's true and viable uh, and historically uh, proven that, yeah, actually having a child, even through rape, is a good way to make sure uh, empires uh, fuse together without uh, too much bloodshed. And it's interesting that he was even actually considerate uh, in air quotes, in how he went about it, giving her time to accept her role uh, into bearing his child. Uh, even though his internal monologue reveals later that he saw her as much as a way to entertain himself as a, for ac- actually accelerating the assimilation of Midland. But uh, I like that Charlotte's um, inherent shyness and reclusiveness, uh, as well as her personal history with her father, plays a role here. Uh, leading Ganishka to realize she's tied to Griffiths. Uh, I think it's an interesting way to to further the story through uh, the characters, right? You you mm-hmm. use Ganishka's status as an emperor who's conquered many countries before, so he knows what it's done. And then there's Charlotte, who's not the average princess because she's pretty... Again, shy, reclusive, not necessarily uh, knows much about the ways of the world, uh, deeply in love with Griffiths, and to use that as a way to further the story, he ends up not raping her, but it's 
uh, establish the fact she's important, which comes into play right after that when Griffith comes mm-hmm. to save her. Uh, so just very clever way to retroactively introduce the most important part of the story, of that story segment, while the story segment is already started and it doesn't divulge, uh, his, Grad doesn't show his hand, basically. It's like, yeah, there's this thing. And only three episodes later do you learn that actually that was a goal, it was to save her. So just, right. I think, very well done. Mm-hmm. I didn't mention it, but I wanted to before I passed the mic, and that is that we see this wide mouth of Ganishka's, and we, we kind of alluded to it in the last episode, but I wanted to talk about it specifically here. Mm. We know this guy is an apostle. How do we know that? Because he just drops lots of hints, right, uh, about who he is and what he's capable of and what he knows about. But then we see this very supernatural wide mouth with teeth that curve outwards. And it's like he's showing his form a little bit, much like an apostle will partially transform. I think his mouth is always like that. Uh, every time it's we under see- the beard, it's always like that. And we're just seeing a little peek at it under his beard. Yeah, pretty much. I never yeah. thought about that before. Is this mouth just bad teeth? Yeah. Every panel you see of his mouth, every single one, he's got these teeth. Wow. I think it's interesting because, I mean, I can talk about that for a while. For the longest time, I thought I was, you know, sure that the fog form he has was uh, something he did through magic, but that he also had an apostle form that was more in line with what we're used to, uh, just a monster, like with big eyes and uh, and big teeth and burly, uh, you know, appendages and stuff like that. But it ends up not being the case. In the end, it's just a fog. But... Because of these teeth, and for example, there's that panel where you see him uh, uh, just after the one with uh, the Earth and the rising sun, you see one of his face where he's staring mm-hmm. and he's got these big yeah. eyes and the teeth and stuff. And, and that's right. his face, right? And you see that, you say, okay, this guy's got to be, he's got to have a monster form, right? But right. No, actually, We're seeing it. We're seeing the monster form come out, right? Nope. <laughs> yeah, that's, nope. Just, that's just his face. And so he's got that face, and that's his permanent face, and then he transforms into Poor fog. guy. So it's, yeah, it's a bit uh, counterintuitive, I would say. But at the same time, I mean, nothing says it can't be done, and I guess it was done. So that's, that's that. Well, I think what you're describing, and I'm right, I'm right with you. These are similar to how I felt at, at the time. If you, if you asked me in episode 235, a little bit further past this... Uh, the fog form was just his special trick, just like the Daka are his special trick. Mm-hmm. And his apostle form was what has been hinted at with these teeth. Yeah. But uh, not to Damn. be. Kept us guessing with all that. But yeah, I guess the rest of the time he's really toning down his monster look where he's just like. Orp. Well, that's why yeah, he's got I, I never. <laughs> I never realized it, but it's a very clever beard trick is yeah. what it is. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a page. Uh, the Griffith embroidery is at the center of this page when he's just realizing the connection between Griffith uh, and the embroidery where he says, what's this? And you can see his little teeth there poking out under his beard. Yeah. And what would otherwise be a normal panel, not an exaggerated panel. Yeah. If we didn't see otherwise, we would just assume it was a normal set of teeth. Yeah. Yeah. um, I mean, at the time, I remember at the time, the, the mouth and the teeth were like a big deal, at least to me. Oh, they were. Yeah. Well, that was like, you know, you're getting, again, we're getting a peek at his apostle form, right? We better remember those teeth. Yeah. And especially since, I mean, on these ones, uh, we see just a glimpse, but actually as it progresses, we see that his mouth is huge. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's very, very wide. It goes right up to his ears. 
there's the I think I think it was Griffith who made the joke at the time. If he was on here, he'd say it. But on the page where he's laughing and saying interesting, mm-hmm. the yeah. way the panel was arranged uh, with Griffith, oh sorry, with Ganishka at the top frame, his kind of his form is kind of bowing out a little bit towards the the mouth and the panel below it. It looks like his mouth is wider than his body because it's two different panels. Oh yeah, yes. Griffith <laughs> making that joke about it. How big is his mouth actually? <laughs> That's all. I can't do it as well as he could. I'm sorry, folks. That's it. I know I talked for a lot, but there's a lot going on in this episode. And I didn't even really mention the fact that Rock just appears here. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to point it out, actually. Go uh, for it. Just at the time, there was a discussion about what's a shape. What's a shape? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember this at all. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Who could it be? Who could it it's be? It's Slan. They don't. Hey, it could be. The cliff off was a surprise. This could be Conrad this time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it does. I never considered that. It does yeah. look like Conrad a little bit. <laughs> could be. But, uh, but yeah, obviously Rakshas and. Uh... <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, man, just like in volume 23, when we see these, this, these, this group square off. We see the Rakshas versus the Tapasa and the Silla. I always feel bad for the Tapasa here because I feel for them, man, for the same reason that Silla just professed that, you know, they've had to train their bodies. Uh, they're trying really hard. They've dedicated their lives to this form, and, and Rakshas is just toying with them in every scene that they're in. Well, uh, and, until volume 39. Yeah, I was going to say, I got good news for you. Zan end up uh, giving him oh, what I he love deserves. I <laughs> <That's, laughs> love it. That's their opening cool. fight. And especially yeah. since every time they meet, he taunts them like that. He's like, eh, not so good, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've fallen solo, the Bakaraka. And when they actually uh, give him what for, it's, uh, yeah, it's also it's more good. satisfying. That's it. Uh, Gray, I'm going to hand it off to you for the next episode. All right. So the next episode we have is Demon Soldiers, or DACA. And... As we open the episode, this mysterious, rakshas-shaped shadow creeps up on Salat and the Tapasa. But the Bakiraka are not the types to be caught by surprise. They immediately react in a coordinated attack against the Apostle. Uh, the shadow is easily able to dodge the Tapasa's martial arts and Silat's Urumi, observing that the Bakiraka have fallen far to allow themselves to be snuck up on so easily, uh, finally revealing himself as indeed Rakshas. Big mistake. Uh, it's a chakram, not an urumi. Oh, my bad. I must have remembered wrong. Chakram. Okay. The urumis are the, you know, it's a five-bladed uh, whip sword he's got on around his waist. That was what it was. I remember he explained it now. Um, where was I? Salat inquires if Rakshas is here to uh, attempt to assassinate the emperor, but he explains that he hasn't come to Wyndham for that. As they speak, Locus and a group of mounted apostles gallop in through the castle gates. Rakshas taunts the Bakiraka, who, have given cha- who give chase as he dashes away. Meanwhile, a guard announces to Emperor Ganishka that intruders have passed the gates. Ganishka is already aware of the invasion. As the panel pulls out, we're witnesses to the grisly butchering of Midland women who are being fed alive to Ganishka's crocodiles. He wonders how far the soldiers of the Band of the Falcon will get while casually watching the crocodiles feast. Outside, Ganishka's men try to fend off the band of the falcon as it approaches. 
The Emperor's archers have little success, with the mounted apostles simply shrugging off the arrows before Locust bats the arrows away with a flurry of movements from his lance. Then, the archers are themselves quickly dispatched by apostle archers, including Irvine, who are shooting from a far-off rooftop. Clearly, the humans are outmatched by their demonic counterparts. Ganishka gives orders to send out the Daka, who are revealed to be horrid, half-human creatures, with appearances distorted by horns, claws, and massive drooling mouthfuls of teeth, much like their master. Locus wonders aloud about what these Daka creatures are. From across the courtyard, Ganishka calls them soldiers from hell that he bore through secret arts. Now face to face, Locus himself introduces himself in a knightly manner to the dread emperor as the captain of the band of the Falcon's Lancers. Ganishka welcomes the band of the Falcon to his demon castle. He observes that they came to him in large numbers, which he calls foolhardy, and wonders aloud to Locus whether they have come as a test of the Falcon to gauge his power. Ignoring this question, Locus poses a question of his own, apostle to apostle. Why does he oppose their master? Ganishka answers with a booming laugh. He calls himself a king among kings, one who has trampled more underfoot than anyone else in the world, and calls himself the one and only fundamental in this world of filth. For Griffith to establish his supremacy, he demands that he take it from him by force, blood for blood, uh, repeating what he said in an earlier episode. He exclaims that with his blood-drenched hands, he will desecrate God. Locus and the other apostles are deeply disturbed by Ganishka's de declaration, with the, and with eyes aglow, Locus abandons his previous courtesy, telling the emperor not to flatter himself and calling him a fool. Ganishka challenges Locus to have at him, and the episode closes with the Daka closing in on the Lancer apostles. And uh, this was, I, uh, to me, this was pretty much just a continuation of the previous episodes in terms of the idea of giving us more information about Ganishka, and now furthering that, giving us more information about uh, Griffith's plans and potentially what the outcome is going to look like. Uh, so that was a, a useful reference in, in terms of how Ganishka is this rogue apostle. What are his plans? What are, you know, he's basically just repeating what he said earlier, but he's saying it to Locus now. And now we're getting his reaction, which. I always find funny that he is so offended and so outraged. He is clutching those pearls saying, how dare you? How dare you say these things, you know? And uh, we're finally going to get a, a look at him. Uh, this was, was this his first time transforming into his apostle form? I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first yeah. time, yeah. And, uh, so that was must have been an interesting uh, transition uh, for those who were reading episodically at the time. It was like, oh, what's it going to be? Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I, I do love the exchange between Locus and Ganishka. Uh, I like that Locus sheds the pretense of mankind to ask Ganishka directly uh, as an apostle why he's doing what he's doing. I think that's pretty cool. And, yeah. Uh, He's Beyond very, politics, what's the what's the game here? Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's very revealing that they would usually, and they they tend to keep pretending to be human. Mm -hmm. uh, but in that case, even though Ganishka is addressing him, uh, I would say a little formally, Locus cuts yeah. to the chase and like, okay, let, let me ask you directly. And uh, and of course, I love uh, Ganishka's answer, and I love that his arrogance and uh, I guess sacrilege visibly pisses them off and it's not just locusts but even the others you can see they're pissed off so yeah it's pretty right. funny that they would uh, hold the gun hand so high 
uh, that's, uh, yeah, it would annoy them like that. Yeah, it's their form of warped religion, I guess, where they feel like it's it's like somebody saying something very sacrilegious as if as if it were the Holy See or something like well, that. I but, mean, I, they are apostles yeah. after all. Yeah, exactly. So it's just really interesting to get that conversation. You don't see that apostle to apostle uh, exchange very often in terms of talking about, you know, what are you doing and why are you doing it, your motivations and stuff. Pacing wise, it's, I mean, this whole episode's about it's heating up. You know, we had this relatively static scenario where we had the infiltration force with uh, Raban. Like, he's there, kind of who cares? Uh, and then Silat's there to deliver news. But now we have, now that we've learned about an apostle that has positioned himself against the other apostles in the God Hand, how will Miura mix this up? He mixes it up by immediately introducing the opposing force right here in, the, in his midst. And so you, as readers, you're like, now we will get to see how this anti-apostle apostle stacks up against apostles. You know, he's already giving us exactly what you want to see. Like, how does this, how is this actually going to, what's this interplay going to be? Right. And one sense that I got from this episode that obviously we know as readers of further in the series is that he really doesn't care about any of his minions. He, he's really just throwing whatever at, Griffith's army just to see what's going to stick and see how they react to it. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's already apparent well, based on his interior decorating, but he really doesn't have any regard for human life whatsoever. It's really all about his goal. I mean, he, he kind of, it's kind of strategic. It's a split second thing, but he, he knows that apostles are going to go through humans like mincemeat. And so his next card to play is show them the inhuman monsters that I've created because humans aren't going to do anything, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. It's good that the Godaka were already ready to go. Uh, right there, all dressed up. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Uh, the the Daka character design is... I feel bad for these dudes. You know, because I see them now, and I just remember later in Vertanis when they get cut off, basically, and they are confused <laughs> um, from the rest of the force. This... Why is it? Why do I feel empathy for these these monsters? Well, they're just know. standing there uh, drooling, and it's so sad. Yeah, I'll tell you why. It's because they're abominations. They look like abominations, and they are. They're, I mean, it's like they're, they're laboratory experiments, pretty much. Yeah. They're slaves as well. They're born into slavery, like, you know, and they devour their mothers, and uh, oh, it's just... Yeah. Right. It's r- wrong on every level. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. A, yeah. You're right. Abomination is the right way yeah. to go. They, they it's are, against nature in, yeah. a, in a variety of ways. They are eerily creepy. Like when you see that first uh, two-page spread and then the, the full page of, of uh, Daka, they are creepy. Like Greta said, they're drooling just because of their mouth design. It's probably yeah, like they can't even help, help it. Of course, it also mm-hmm. sh- shows their relation to Kanishka with the thief. Uh, and yeah, they, they're, they're a pathetic, um, yeah. how to say, force, right? Uh, who, like, uh, like you, like where I said, they're controlled by the, the Kushan priests who inhale the fog. Uh, mm-hmm. and without them, they basically, I mean, can't do anything, I guess, or just have instinct, uh, because they also, uh, use accelerated growth, right? They're babies who mm-hmm. get grown to the adult stage, uh, uh, it it kind of reminds me actually of farm animals, and maybe that's maybe that's uh, what inspired Mira to do it. You know, with industrial uh, cattle raising, where they just like they grow these animals faster than they can. They, you know, keeps them apart from their mother. It's very cruel, and uh, 
mm-hmm. and disgusting. Uh, and uh, actually, yeah, it reminds me of that. Yeah. Um, the crocodiles. Is he just keeping them fed? Like, what's the deal with the crocodiles? Why, why is this happening? Because we know a portion of the women are kept to breed Dadaka. And those that aren't, I guess, just become crocodile snacks. He must have a lot of them. Does this yeah. happen all the time, you know? Well, he... I mean, we do see later on that there's a prison full of women, right? You remember sure. that? So yeah, I feel, yeah, no, I do. I, I would imagine that uh, the men have already been fed to the crocs. And uh, since there's no more living men to feed them, he's starting to tap into the women... Uh... Yeah, okay. I guess he's just depleting the population... And uh, feeding his uh, pishacha at the same time, yeah. or what would eventually become that. And be- because he's an apostle, he's there to make sure that it's proceeding as planned. You know, he's an, he's enjoying every second of this display, this horrifying thing. Well, yeah, yeah. it's just business, right? It's just business, but also mm-hmm. pleasure. <laughs> if you think back to the uh, the count, who has just mm-hmm. uh, no, of course, yeah, cutting cutting up slices of people and eating whole bodies in his basement. Uh, this is pretty much the same thing, yeah. There's no TV, yeah. so he's just watching women being devoured. <laughs> this is his entertainment. Yeah, like you said, that with apostles, it's it's in their nature to desire this sort of thing, right? Um, there's another cool thing, and it's subtle, and you have to think about it in the perspective of, uh, you know, as, as someone reading the series in sequence. After the um, apostles break through the human force... Ganeshka's thinking back and he kind of squints his eyes and he sees the outline of them in his, in his mind. You know, we know from what he initially said that the fog, uh, anything that steps into the fog, he's aware of. And we actually see that happening and his, him grasping what's happening through the little image in his mind. He's, he's feeling the fog in that little panel. I thought it was nice, the mirror, to spell it out like that, that he can visualize and sense things through the fog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not necessary, but I like that he did that explicitly. Yeah, it's helpful. Helpful yeah. for us. <laughs> I really love, and I'll always one of the more visually memorable things about this episode to me is uh, Locus's eyes, and they start to crackle with the energy at the last page. Very, very, very cool effect. Yeah, and yeah, it makes you really want to know what his form will be for sure. Right, and that last panel. What I find interesting about that last panel is that you're not worried necessarily that the Daka are going to take out the the Lancers. I feel like that's not what we're intended to think it's more like how what cool way is locus and his team gonna whoop these guys yeah yeah it yeah, ends totally. up being very cool <laughs> as expected <laughs> well that's it for me yeah uh okay i guess i'll take it from there then next episode is demon knight um so it starts with uh, silat and the tapasa in hot pursuit of uh, rakshas on the roofs of the city they come to a large building in the form of a dome, and inside they find a gigantic mass of flesh. It's composed of many apostles who have been mangled and soon infused together to produce this organic contraption. From the top, pregnant women are lowered inside the monstrous shape, and once inside, a baby Daka erupts from their belly and comes out at the bottom. He then fed the entrails of the lifeless body of his mother. The Bakiraka are justifiably horrified at this spectacle. Uh, we see that the litany of Kushans uh, is busy maintaining this operation too. Uh, they are handling the Daka, force-feeding the apostles via large sacks hanging from the ceiling, but also controlling the spiritual process as we see rows of priests at work. 
Rakshas lives on a warning. Ganishka is a true demon emperor and isn't human. And the back characters are left filled with doubt. Meanwhile, we cut to Locus as a bunch of Daka assault him by surprise all at once. His eyes flash and in an instant his enemies are all skewered. We see a very cool reveal of his apostle form as a metallic center, all in curves and blade-like protrusions, with a single very wide slit-like eye and his lance is transformed into an extensible two-bladed weapon. Uh, a wider shot reveals that his men have also transformed and gotten rid of their opponents. Uh, apostles obviously aren't so easily overwhelmed. Ganishka then gestures force and Mordaka and Pishasha emerge for an old fight. So that's it for the episode. It's very visual. Uh, definitely the big deal uh, is the reveal of the artificial Beheret that produces the Daka. Although we don't know yet, it's called like that. Uh, and it's of course Raksha's main reason for coming to win them. Uh, that's what he alludes to in that episode uh, earlier when uh, he's confronted by the Bakiraka. We don't actually get to know exactly what he's doing, but yeah, he was checking out the artificial Beheret, which is integral to Griffith's plans in a way readers couldn't possibly understand at the time and only get to realize uh, by volume 34, or maybe 33. Um, and there was a lot of speculation as to what his real goal was at the time, just showing what Ganishka was up to to Silat, but that seemed not very likely. Well, we ended up learning that. Uh, mm. And also, of course, the other big deal is uh, Locus uh, Apostle Form, which is very unique, uh, more so even than Grumbell's. Uh, very science fiction-y, I would say. Uh, yeah. But pretty cool. So, what do you guys think? I think that uh, for Locus's uh, Apostle Form in particular... I think it, it reveals a lot about his character in the same way that uh, Grunbeld's transformation re- reveals about his character, that they both have this kind of idealized uh, notion of what they want to appear like, even in this monstrous form. And it reminded me of how in the previous episode, Locus started out very courteous to Ganishka and then just sort of drops the pretense. So it he's very futuristic looking, very, you know, like... Uh, just really interesting to look at as an apostle, but at the end, he's still a monster. So I thought that was a cool mm-hmm. touch. The What it is about the futuristic thing, it's really that you can't do those things with metal yet. You know, they can't bend metal in that way in this era of uh, scientific knowledge. But because he's an apostle, he can shape things however he wants. And so he probably had this idea of this uh, sinewy uh, curvature metal, and he made that happen. I like to think of it as his whole body is a weapon. I don't know if that's totally accurate. Or that's the he looks sharp, for it. sure. Yeah. He looks like he's a giant sword or weapon. Every part of him is sharp, uh, and like like a blade, you know? Uh, I don't know. That's, that's what I've always thought about it as. But yeah, the, the, the eye going across kind of reminds me of the Cylons, of course. At least mm-hmm. to me, it did. The, <laughs> ver- the horizontal uh, eye thing. Yeah. Um, the episode itself, the DACA creation process is brutal and gross. And it's one of those things where once you start thinking about it, it's hard to stop thinking about it. It's just a lot of layers going on here. Yes. The fact that pregnant women are involved, the fact that they're being forcibly raped into this position, um, the fact that they're, 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 their children are being turned into monsters and rips out of the woman. They're being fed their, their moms. It's just like... 
come on, man. It's just it's, so much. Yeah. You yeah. can't stop thinking about it. Like you said, like I was just reading this last night. I was like, damn, this is Christmas, man. And it's all done <laughs> industrial. It's all industrialized, right? right? Yeah. Every little step. It's like there's probably a fucking manual out there somewhere for step 13B for this thing, you know? And it's a, it's not just one evil person. It's become a process. Like there's a guy, there's this panel, the one that sticks out to me. He's just feeding the babies. He's just that's his job. His job is to pick up the entrails and scoop them up and feed them to the kids in the cage. Yeah. Right. And there's a it's guy. Just, there's a guy with the barrels. He has managers yeah. with uh, little pots and notes, while other guys are emptying barrels into one of the sacks before it's hoisted up to feed the apostles. It's uh, oh my god. <laughs> and yeah, the the mundaneness of it is horrifying. Oh yeah, it's just Absolutely. a Tuesday. These guys yeah. in the, probably in the background and somebody's clocking out, and then the next yeah. guy's coming in to continue Time to go that on guy's break. job. I, it's I'm, one I'm of being those... <laughs> I'm being coy about this because it's hard to take it full force with full force, full honesty. Right. It's it's just so brutal. It really um, is. You feel sorry you, for the apostles too. Almost. Yeah. I was about to say. Oh, it's yeah. a rare the subjugated thing. apostles. It's a rare thing that you even feel bad for the apostles when you see the ones with the mouth uh, that are, you know, soon with the uh, stuff to yeah. feed them, the, the tubes, uh, yeah. so that they have no choice. And, they, you know, they've got the blackened eyes because, I mean, they must be in such a state. Uh, it's horrible. Even for them, it's horrible. Yeah, the fact that they was able to subjugate this many apostles and turn them inside out effectively and then have these... He's really thought about this. Like, mm-hmm. I'm imagining how this conversation must have gone with Daiba. Daiba's like, I mean, sire, I suppose it's theoretically possible that we could do this <laughs> insane thing. And Ganeshka's like, well, we're going to do it with chains and spears, and we're just going to make it happen. You know, it's, it's, it's the same thing Azil alluded to in the previous episode. Like, what could an apostle do? Would they add power over humanity in such a way? And really power over other apostles? You know, someone that had enough resources and know-how could make a monstrosity like this. And, you know, and Miura just went for it. You know, he mm, could yeah. create this thing. Uh, it, it, he didn't just rule over a town and tax them really highly. You know what I mean? He created a, a process to create monsters that's that subverts what the rules of the universe are supposed to do. You know, he's like a mad scientist, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. It's a far cry from the Snake Baron days. Yeah, totally. Exactly. That would be a very common application of someone that has supernatural power. What would they do? They'd be jerks about the taxes. They'd be jerks about bringing people in on the cages, and he'd, he'd eat them, right? That's pretty straightforward. This is uh, 10 levels beyond that. Yeah. This is, yeah. And it's also, of course, a way to show that Ganishka is very, very strong. Enough that, enough so that he can capture and subjugate apostles and reduce them to this. I mean, yeah. you know, lower the guys. And it's, well, of course, we already got uh, a glimpse of that with Zod, uh, of what he says in volume 17, and of the fact he just kills wild like it's nobody's business. But uh, yeah, it's another another thing to see, to see this at, at, at work. What's interesting to me is that when you, when you read about the history of war, uh, for an army to come into a city, rape all the women, uh, kill all the kids, kill all the men... Uh, I mean, it's something that's been done. Uh, for example, the Japanese army uh, in China, of course, you know, there's a Nanking massacre, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They were throwing babies in the air and cutting them down with uh, katanas, right? Uh, just for entertainment. Right. And so when you think about that level of atrocity and the fact 
they would take women and just uh, have a hundred men rape them in a row. This kind of industrial-sized horror, uh, in a way, Mura manages to replicate that uh, by showing us this. At least that's how it felt to me uh, when I read this. I was like, you know what? It's a way to show that when you've got a huge empire, a huge army, uh, capturing a whole capital city of people, uh, you know, to have that, just feeding women to the crocodiles, uh, raping them en masse, then throwing them in that thing to create Dhaka. Uh, all this stuff and all that horror you feel reading on the page in a fantasy story, uh, to me it replicates the actual horror of being uh, just a normal person and having a, a, no- a whole army come to your town and just ravage everything, kill everyone, rape, kill, destroy, burn. Uh, and uh, it, again, it echoes what God said uh, when he saw Enoch. It was like, well, it's no worse that what an army would do. At least they didn't set fire to the town. Uh, yeah. Very pragmatic way of seeing mm-hmm. things like guts. And yeah, anyway, to me, seeing that stuff, that uh, kind of physical body horror of that uh, buried contraption just evoked the industrial nature of war and what people do to conquer cities. Yeah, I mean, I'm agree with everything you say. I don't, I'm not trying to disregard it. Uh, he's turned his subjugated into weapons of war. You know, the women themselves, yeah. who would otherwise just be killed and raped, and then that would be it. He's turned them into fuel for this new biological machine that he's made to to continue his war effort. You know, so he's like using every last scrap of what he finds in a horrible way. Yep. Yeah. Um, you alluded to it, but I wanted to talk about it a little bit, is that Rakshas himself, who's narrating all these things, he's serving for the reader as the inside knowledge thing, or at least he's able to observe it and understand it. But he's very enigmatic in this episode because, you know, he let he interacted with the Tapasa. They had this little skirmish, but he leads them here so that they can see it. Obviously, his primary mission, as Azil said, was probably to lay eyes on the thing that is critical for Griffith's plans. Griffith probably knows this thing already exists, but it'd be nice if we're already there to pick up Charlotte. Go ahead and lay eyes on this because this is going to be critical later on. You know, that totally makes sense to me. But to lead Selat there and to just tell him all about this, it makes me think that he wanted Selat to see this. And I don't know the reason for that. I can, I can make a couple guesses, right? Um, my first guess, the obvious one, is that ultimately Jarif, Jarif um, proposes to Selat to join them. Obviously, that doesn't work out. That probably was supposed to work out, though. If Silat wasn't Silat, that would flow perfectly well, particularly with Silat's knowledge of what you know his former master mm. had done. You can see how that domino effect would have gone. Man, I don't know if that was planned, though. I feel like it's a it's a chance thing. If I were to, I mean, my my uh, at least my feeling is that. Uh, shaking uh, the trust they have in Ganeshka, which is already not very strong, and basically splitting the Bakaraka away from uh, the Kushan Empire just weakens it, uh, generally speaking. And while these guys aren't a threat to Griffiths, they can be a nuisance. Yeah. The, the one I actually feel more uh, partial to, though, is the idea that Rakshas shares a pass with the Baki Raka, and he's giving them an out here. He's allowing, do you really want to be allied with this complete monster? To me, it's like a, it's like a, he's, he's giving them a hand. Yeah. Now, if you want to exit, this is the time, basically. 
That's, the way, that's what I like to hear. Think about it anyway. I'm not sure. I mean, he's an apostle. Uh, I don't think he. I'm not sure he cares that much. I think he, he saw them there, and since he was going to scout it, he just let them only a little chase because it's amusing to him, and uh, showing them what what's really going on with Ganishka was also just amusing. And uh, yeah, like I said, maybe a way also to get them to not be as uh, confident in their mission anymore. But I would, I don't know, at least it's just my take, but I, I don't think he cares very much if they survive or not. He's on a It would be strange for him to have feelings for uh, his former clan, right? But yeah. it's, it's of- tricky to trick, uh, to track Rakshas's uh, motivations. Cause he's like a guy who collects masks and stuff for fun. Sure. So <laughs> what, what kind of, <laughs> what, what, what is he exactly thinking? I, I'm not sure. I like the idea of him just being sort of like, Oh, well, you know, this is something I can do to pass the time or maybe, uh, you know, save myself a little extra effort in the future. Who knows? <laughs> he wants to save uh, Silat's face to make a mask out of it. That's a good, oh, it's a good face. He's a pretty handsome his dude. his collection of heads. Silat <laughs> yeah. um, says, Rakshas, what do you know? And then Silat just laughs and says that, you know, the one who's your master is truly a demon. Uh, so mm, that exchange between Silat and Rakshas, that little coy laugh thing, what do you think about that? Because you can read that two ways. The superficial is just, wow, you sure know a lot about this. How are you able to say so much? Well, I'm an apostle and I have keen observation. And I can just tell you that. Or is it implying that he knew some of this beforehand about the DACA creation process? I ask because of his teeth, of course. Rakshas's teeth on his mask always reminded me of the DACA. Mm-hmm. They're not exactly the same. But uh, similar enough that it evokes it to me. Hmm. Never thought about it. Well, uh, I don't know. I don't think I don't think there's a relation. Okay. Because the Bacteriacars have been expelled from the Christian Empire for centuries, uh, and Rakshas, Silat, and the Tapasa know of him. So he wasn't born uh, four hundred years ago. So I don't. Why does that have to be the four hundred years thing? I'm not sure why that's a factor. Well, the thing is, Rakshas, you know, was part of the Bakaraka clan. He was not part of the Christian Empire. Uh, he was not under Ganishka's rule. So I don't. Eh, come on, though. That's the, you're saying that's not possible for the Bakaraka to have come across Ganishka's path while Ganishka was on the war path. That's, that's possible. That's within the cards. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't think. I just don't see what the relation between Rakshas and the Daka would be. Uh, to me, it's the design, it's just the teeth themselves, and the fact that Rakshas's presence up on Mount Ganeshka at the end of Volume 34, that's his enigmatic presence there, his basic insistence, apparently, to be there to see the end of Ganeshka. At least that's how I read that. Mm. Um, makes me think that he might have some personal vendetta against Ganeshka. And if if you believe that, if you're willing to go that far, which is pretty far, I'll admit, then why is that the case? I think he might have something to do with the DACA. I don't know what. Well, I don't know. I never thought about that before, and I'm not convinced, to be honest. Okay. We've talked about this before, though. This podcast has been running for almost 10 years. I guarantee you this has come up three or four times because I've been hardlining about it. No, honestly, I, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, Rakshas and Tadaka, uh, I mean, I, I might be wrong. 
I, I won't say I'm 100% sure, but I don't remember it. Okay. Well, I mean, I think I think it's probably did it on the Baki Raka podcast. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, could be, could be. I do think it's interesting that he was there in, uh, in volume 34, but uh, I don't know. I don't feel like he had a particular vendetta against Ganishka. And I, I, like, I wouldn't know why. You know what I mean? Oh, I don't know why either. I don't know. Can't, I can't complete that picture any more than anybody else can. Hmm. Uh, it's just that moment, that exchange between Silat and Rakshas, uh, basically implying that he has some special knowledge and all he does is laugh. And we see him on top of Kanishka or under Zod's wing. I, I put those two together personally. Mm. No. I thought I'm in the same folder as, hmm, curious association with Kanishka. I don't know. He's always laughing and... Uh... <laughs> well, we, th- we definitely can't take every laugh and file it in the same folder, though. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. He's laughing the whole time he's there, so he's a kufufu thing. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, as the scene ends, I really like how this depiction of the the darkness in the hallway and the the light in the room, despite the fact that it's horrifying in there. Just the way that scene gets depicted, and uh, the lighting on Silat's face also is very cool. Yeah. Mm. You can Very tell, dramatic. You can tell uh, Raksha's word and, of course, what he just uh, saw uh, as, you know, he's shook, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, and as for uh, Locus and the Lancers, see all the Lancers transformed. It's very cool. Their spears all out. And this arrangement or the, or the composition is very cool in the two-page spread. All the, It's a very spiky arrangement. I like it a lot. Yeah. Yep. Daka did not stand a chance. Yeah, they, they get, really did not. They get fucked. <laughs> which is really unfortunate at the same time because it's like you just saw how the process of which they're being made is so gruesome and so terrible. And then they just get thrown away, basically. Yeah. And uh, like an episode ends with, you know, stage three. First it was human soldiers, then it was Daka, and then come the Pisacha as the episode ends. Yeah. And that's where we're going to stop, because that's all the time we have for this extra long episode. Um, Thanks for joining us this far, and we'll be back to finish Volume 27 uh, in about a month. Woohoo! Bye-bye. Bye. Happy New Year. As always, I wanted to thank our Patreon donors who have been giving back to the ongoing translation efforts of Puella. If you're just checking out the forum, you've probably been missing out on the exclusive stuff that's only available on Patreon. So please go check that out. It's at patreon.com sknet. The newest material is the first part of Koji Mori's tribute comic to Miura, which is a real doozy. It's the one that packed quite an emotional punch right as the final episode of Berserk was delivered. It was included in the Messages to Miura portion of that young animal. So definitely check that out. We've also amassed about 10 mini podcasts at this point, and you can get access to those with the silver tier, which is about $5 a month. If you don't know what those are, that's 30 minute to one hour long conversations between myself and Azil. We got drunk on one of those and just talked about Berserk for an hour. Um, and really those are just extra stuff. So if you like this podcast and you want just a little bit more, those were recorded and designed just for you. 
We have three tiers. There's the bronze tier for $3, which includes updates from Azeal, and he's pretty regular about those. Unique berserk tidbits and thoughts, glimpses at rare merchandise, behind-the-scenes stuff. That's $3 a month. For the silver tier, you get those bonus podcasts in addition to what I just discussed. And finally, our gold tier, you get everything plus exclusive access to the ongoing translations that Puel has been working on, which include Miura interviews, the messages to Miura section, a whole bunch of stuff that has not been posted on the forum yet. Uh, also, I wanted to thank those that have been giving to our gold tier. Those include Piran, M, Spacey Louse, Rombad, Darklink, Dirtiest M, Walter, Modal Eternal, Thomas Lambert, Milbs, Jason, Asmer, Guts, Jija, and Isha. Thanks to everyone for your continued support. We really appreciate it. We could not do this without your support. Once again, that's at patreon.com slash sknet.